Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Our Outside You. I'm your host, Helen Harrell, and I'm excited about talking with my guest today, Stuart Rosenberg, who is an owner and partner in Superior Blue Strategies. As well as having done a lot of things politically, we should say in the past, he was campaign manager for Indiana Senator J.D. Ford. And he's been a field director for Tammy Baldwin, and uh, for he was the field director for HRC. I met Stuart a few years ago when he was here in Indiana for, I think it was the marriage uh, bill, if I'm correct. But anyway, welcome to our Outside View, Stuart. Can we, can we do this again? Do what again? We got a bunch of facts wrong. Can we retape? Uh, sure, I guess we can. Yeah, what are the facts wrong? I got this off of your Facebook, so. Oh, so I was I I did some of the TV for JD Ford, and it's Foundation Blue Media now. Uh huh. That's it. Okay, well that's fine. Listeners can get that. That's fine. Um, but what is Superior Blue Strategies exactly? Um, so I work for Foundation Blue Media. Um, Foundation Blue Media is a uh, paid media firm that helps um, Democrats and progressives get elected to office. So we do things like digital advertising, television advertising, um, radio advertising for Democrats. And we focus on making sure we get to know their personal stories and that their personal stories come out instead of uh, trying to be all factual with um, we don't want to be. It's not that we don't want to be factual, but as Democrats, we sometimes are afraid to explain our why. In other words, why is it we want to run for office? Why is it we think we can make a difference for people? We often want to just get bogged down into the facts, but we never actually try to explain emotionally why we're involved. And our firm tries to make sure we speak from the heart before we speak from the brain instead of trying to be too intellectualized and not actually try to connect with people. Well, do you think it's at all? I mean, I know that Democrats, a lot of Democrats, and I guess I'm one, I used to be an independent, but I had to register in Indiana as Democrat or Republican. So of course I went Democrat. Um, but I can I tend to be kind of far left of Democrat, I think most of the time, but do you think Democrats are a little bit in, in certain parts of the country, a little bit smug, and that's why they don't explain like they're they be, you know, we're, we're right. We know we're right. And we're on the you know, we're on the right side of things. And so we don't have to explain. I think, yes, it's not intentional. Right. But exactly. I, there's a there's a belief that to the way to connect with people is by proving you're right and you're smarter. Instead of trying to relate to people by showing why you've decided to be involved and why you care. And there is a vulnerability in describing who you actually are and why you care. But that vulnerability allows a connection much better than just trying to prove you're the smartest person in the room and that you're right and somebody else is wrong. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Exactly. It makes sense. I know this area, I can, you know, I'm not from here. Actually, you and I have a, a background in common. We're both from Wisconsin. Yep. Um, and uh, a Green Bay Packer fan here, always will be. Good. Uh, but um, I, uh, in, in Indiana, for example, I mean, it's, you know, it's a red state. It's Republican pretty much. And the area that I'm in in Bloomington is probably the most liberal area. Um, 
And if you can call it that, because it's still very conservative in my opinion, but I do see that pattern in Democrats here in particular in Bloomington is that they're just very, you know, very self-confident about we're right and we're going to do it this way. And, and we don't have to tell you why or we don't have to be transparent about our reasons. And I think that can be very hurtful and harmful. It, it can be very hurtful. And it's it goes even deeper than just saying, I know I'm right, so I don't need to explain why I'm right. But we don't explain why this matters to us personally. And so as a result, it sounds very empty rhetoric. And that's not exactly a word, but it sounds very empty when it says, this is right and this is what we need to do. Well, voters have heard that from Democrats and from Republicans, cycle after cycle, they've sure. heard the talking points over mm -hmm. and over again, but they don't understand, they don't know why the person using the talking point, whether a Democrat or a Republican, actually genuinely cares about the talking point. They just say the talking point. And exactly. while it just gets exhausting as a voter to hear the same talking point over and over again without an authenticity to show that you actually are truly committed to the issue that was the origination of that talking point. I think one of the things that, that even on both sides, a lot of politicians fall short in is, you know, they, like you're, you're saying talking points, but I want to know how, like if you tell me you're going to fix an amendment or you're going to uh, fix the budget or you're going to help with a certain uh, a certain law or a certain process in something or something that people are upset about how are you going to do it what are you going to do what are your plans give me an abc step program that tells me that outlines you know how we're going to get there well the how matters as well but it all comes down to authenticity if the person doesn't believe you in the first place and believe that you truly care about this issue in the first place, they're not going to believe your what, and they're not going to believe your how. They're not going to believe either one of them because you've already lost them. They've already decided this is not somebody who understands me and truly cares about me. Like, for example, you mentioned how we work together to help kill the anti-marriage amendment in Indiana. And I would tell a story about why this mattered to me and and I remember why it mattered to me, because when I was 10 years old, my mom went to law school and I grew up with a very traditional mother starting at 10 years old. His name is Neil Rosenberg. And I grew up with a very traditional mother starting at yes, very traditional father at 10 years old. Her name was Susan Rosenberg. And my dad did the cooking and the cleaning and the grocery shopping, picked the kids up from school. And my mom became a trial lawyer when I was 13 years old in 1984, and let me tell you something, I'm not saying it's easy to be a female trial lawyer now, but in 1984, it sure as heck wasn't. No, exactly. <laughs> I'm a white heterosexual male. I have all the privilege in the world, but you, the stories we would hear from my mom of what she was dealing with was, unre was unbelievable. But I have some good news for you. I'm not sure I can say this on your program. She castrated those bastards. <laughs> I understand exactly what you mean. <laughs> bunch of money. And my dad in his 50s gave a toast at the newspaper where he was a reporter. And he said, to all of you who are going to report the news still, who are going to inform the public, thank you for your public service. I only have one more thing to say, and I won't use the swear words for it. The heck with you. 
I now get to spend my wife's money. And you know what I learned from that story and what I learned from that experience? My mom didn't do well for female lawyers. My mom did well for our family. She did well for all of us. And I learned from my mom that when we all do well, we all do well. And so when I was given an opportunity to run the campaign in Massachusetts that broke the tie to keep the anti-marriage amendment off the ballot in 2005, I took that lesson I took from my parents that they taught me, which is this wasn't about gay marriage. This wasn't something that was going to help LGBTQ people, but do no good for me. Equality was going to do well for all of us, including me, a heterosexual male. And that. Given this opportunity to run this campaign, of course I was going to do it. And when we won and the human rights campaign called me and they said, we'd like to hire you. I said, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not gay. And they said, 10% ain't 50%. We need more of you to help win. And it didn't even strike my mind as being strange that they wanted to hire me again because of how I was raised. So of course I did it. But I think you saw an authenticity with me when we were working together in Indiana that I truly cared. And until you saw that I truly cared, you weren't going to work with me on this issue. You didn't care what, how I told you about how we were going to win or what we were going to do or any of those things, unless you first believed that I actually cared about this in the first place. And then you believed that I actually cared for your opinion in deciding what the what and the how would be. And that's my point of, I think, what we need to do as Democrats more is we need to explain our why and so that people know that we authentically care before we even talk about the what or the how. Otherwise, we never get their attention on the what and how. Well, I think that's, you know, that's an excellent point. Um, I think getting people's attention and holding their attention but how do you convince people that are like just totally polar opposite? They can see that you're committed. They can see that you're sincere. They can see that you, um, you know, really care about what you're doing and, and what you believe, but they're just never, ever going to accept what you have to say. They're not going to see things the way you do. You don't bother. In other words, well <laughs> you don't bother. And what I mean by that is, you're never going to convince all the people all the time. The question becomes, what do you need to do to be successful? How many people do you need to convince? How many votes do you need? Do you need how many dollars do you need? How many hours do you need? Whatever it is you're trying to achieve in that you're in the campaign you're pursuing, whether it's political or not political, you have a plan and you know how to get there. And the plan never should be. You need to convince everybody because if you try to convince anybody, everybody, there's never enough of the three scarcities to allow yourself to convince everybody. The three scarcities are time, money, and people. And there's one that you can never get more of no matter how hard you try, which is time. So if you're spending your time on people who you're never going to be able to convince, and that's causing you to not have enough time to convince the people you could convince in order to be successful, then you shouldn't be trying to convince the people you can't convince. Well, as you know, I'm sure you're more than aware, the, stat the status of our country right now, the division 
Yep. The uh, the really disastrous, in my opinion, the disastrous administration we have right now. And I am someone who actually did associate somewhat with Trump's crowd many years ago. I'm a lot older than you, by the way, and I. Uh, so I see maybe I see things a little differently in 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 the time frame of what's transpired in our country. But I don't think I've ever seen anything as disastrous. And I mean, I lived through the 50s with the McCarthy era and uh, the anti-communist, uh, you know, the big fear and panic about that. And um, what, where do we go from here? What do, you, what do you see? What are you doing right now? And who are you going to be working with to try and make changes? I know it's in, you know, one area at a time. We can only affect one election here and one election there. But um, what what are you doing in particular? Well, this is, why, this is why I mentioned what the name of the firm is. It's called Foundation Blue Media. The where isn't necessarily a state or a region. It's the type of office we're focusing on. And it's the foundation for changing things in America. And the foundation for our changing in America in an electoral sense is municipal and state legislative races. That's where people's lives are impacted more on a day-to-day -day basis than any other level of government. And we often as Democrats have gotten so focused on Congress and Senate and president that as a result, we've lost people on the local level. Indiana in 2006 had a majority state house. It's now in the super minority as of 2019 in the state house. And so if you want to control things on the federal level, I would say it can be any municipal office anywhere. And even if it's a municipal office where it's 90% Republican, if you get 20% of the vote instead of 10% of the vote in a municipal office, that's 10% more people who are now engaged in the electoral process that may end up voting in an election where maybe their municipality isn't the difference in the election, but their extra 10% makes the difference in a larger race as well. So I would say start at the municipal level, start at the local level, start at the state legislative level, start at the foundation of democracy. Don't start all the way at the top, start at the foundation. And that's which how you can move things in our country. Which is pretty much grassroots organizing, correct? Exactly. Because you can well, do grassroots organizing. You can do grassroots organizing on a national level. You can do it on a state level. But if you've built the foundation on the local level where it's easier to do, when I say easier, I don't mean to say it's easy, but it's easier. Right. Meaning you can knock on every door in a municipality. You can go to every public function in a municipality. Now, I mean, I say this, assuming the municipality is not New York City, obviously, but you get my point is you can interact with people face-to-face, handshake-to-handshake, easier on the local level, and then it grows from there than trying to do it starting at the national level and working down. And so get to know your neighbors. Have potluck dinners. Have these conversations that aren't always comfortable with the people who you know and you interact with every day. And that's how you have to make change. You know, one of the things that I find that I've observed in, in, in the, here in Bloomington and we're in Monroe County 
is that probably the, the population of Bloomington, of course, if you include the students, is somewhere around 85,000. And when they leave, or maybe it's even more than that now, but when they leave, it's around 70,000, 65,000. And when we have elections here, there are like five and 6,000 people that vote and that's it. Absolutely there, true. There is something seriously wrong. And I know that, and that, you know, it's almost always, and of course I tend to agree, well, a great deal with, with most of the people that are elected because they tend to be Democrats. We have very few Republicans that step forward and run. And um, I know that the county itself is probably more Republican than it is Democrat. So how do you approach, how do you approach turning that around when you have a situation that's so, it seems so biased? So engagement needs to be looked at more broadly to begin with. In other words, people may not be voting, but there's ways to engage them in, civil, in civic discourse in a way that they may get more engaged. And through that engagement, that voting may increase over time. It may not happen immediately. It takes a while. And if you look at your engagement as solely towards in an electoral sense, sort of is I'm doing this because there's an election this November, what inevitably happens is once November happens, everyone stops the engagement for months at a time. They just stop. And then they do it all over again three months before the next election. But if you look at the purpose of engagement as doing it every week, every month, every year, regardless of where an election is, over time, it will then affect the number of people who vote in elections. Instead of starting at looking at our goal is 5,000 people voted this time, let's make it 6,000 next time. I'm saying there are issues all the time that affect us in Bloomington, Indiana, or wherever we live and work and play. And there's no reason why we can't help build that engagement throughout. Let me give you an example of this. It's, it's intriguing. I argue there's only one American in all of America who has been successful in regularly increasing the Latino, out, Latino vote output in elections. Only one in all of America. Take a guess who that is. You'll never guess. I, I don't know. Maybe the president. Nope. <laughs> His name's Harry Reid. Harry Reid. Okay. Former senator of Nevada. Oh, he moved the presidential caucuses, the primary caucuses, whatever you want to call them, from 42nd out of the 50 states to third. And caucuses are super local type things, right? That involves grassroots organizing. And guess what happened? Nevada suddenly mattered in the 2008 primaries and caucuses. And all these, and guess what? 25% of the population of Nevada is Latino. Many of them vote Democratic. Suddenly, there was outreach happening in the Latino communities other than the last two months of a November election, a whole bunch of it. And Latinos came out in droves for these caucuses. Then Harry Reid did something even crazier. He didn't stop. The organization kept on growing in outreach to Latino neighborhoods, not just about voting, about any and any issue that was affecting Latino neighborhoods. There was an organization in place to make sure that there was engagement in working with the Latino population 
and mind you, not all Latinos are the same. So there's different issues for different Latino populations all over the place in Nevada. And there was this constant engagement. So 2008 happens. Barack Obama wins Nevada. John Kerry lost Nevada. Al Gore lost Nevada. Nevada was not a blue state. 2008, he wins Nevada. Harry reads up for election in 2010. He doesn't stop. On the local community level, community to community, still full engagement, not even talking about elections, no discussion about elections at all. Whatever the issues were that are of interest to different Latino populations in different areas in Nevada, whatever they were, Harry Reid's organization was engaged with them. He ran in 2010 for U.S. Senate re-election, which you might remember was a horrible year for Democrats. Yes. And he won. And then he did something even crazier. He still didn't stop. And he's still engaged. And in 2010, the House and the Senate of Nevada were in Republican supermajorities. It's now 2018. They're in Democratic supermajorities. And it didn't happen overnight. It took 10 years. But Harry Reid did not engage, and his organization did not engage with Latino organizations and individuals and neighborhoods just focused on elections. It was on all the issues that the Latino neighborhoods and communities said were important to them for government to be engaged in that caused the side effect, if you want to call it that, of increased turnout in votes. And now the Latino population votes heavily in Nevada compared to almost anywhere else in America. In fact, I will put my bottom dollar on it. The Latino vote in Nevada by percentage compared to registration, I bet is higher than anywhere else in the United States of America. Well, let me, let me clarify one thing. The reason I said the president was because sometimes his negativity, I think, uh, aligns people and you oh, yeah. in opposition, but that's not the way to go. What you've just said here demonstrates to me, it, it kind of clarifies something to me about the local community here is that perhaps they're not reaching out to anybody but themselves. Oh, that's a huge problem in and politics, Democrats and Republican. Imagine you had a pyramid. The one percenters are the chattering class. And if a candidate, a cause, an issue, an organization decides they're going to determine their plans and strategies based on the chattering class, you'll never get past first base because the chattering class is insatiable. There's nothing you can do to fully satisfy the chattering class. And the chattering class doesn't interact with the general population. For example, in a campaign, and let's say it's a, let's say it's a municipal race. I ask this question of all my candidates. I say, if you have to choose between going to your municipal democratic committee meeting or you're invited by the Little League commissioner to the Little League banquet, which should you go to? They all answer the Little League banquet. And then I say, great, which are you going to get more garbage from for not going? And they said the Democratic Committee. I said, yep. And so my response is, get used to it. If you let all the hating from the chattering class cause you to change your plan to try to appease the chattering class, you will not only never appease the chattering class, but you'll actually never talk to the people who actually are going to matter in achieving your cause, your purpose, your election, whatever the case may be. And yet many, many, many elected officials 
And people in government or people who want to run for government respond to the chattering class exclusively and almost exclusively and then wonder why things aren't going well. It's because you're not talking to regular people. And I don't mean regular people pejoratively. I mean, talking about people who don't live and breathe politics. Right. See, that, that's always made perfect sense to me. I see also the chattering class, as you call them here, uh, people don't want anybody from the outside. They don't want anybody different coming in and telling them anything. And it's very hard to break through to say, well, we need to do this. I mean, you know that you know the, the community here and it's a small Latino population, a small black population. It's uh, majority white um, and has been run majority by white males. But now that has changed. There have been there are many women involved now and, and that's progress for sure. And a few more people of color, uh, but to get through to if you if you approach people, sometimes they uh, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen to you. They don't want you to step in and do anything and actually put up barriers. How do you deal with that in a community? So I think this is I don't think peop, the people you've described are any different than every any human being. The person we're least aware of is ourselves. And what I mean by that is when somebody gives us information that makes us uncomfortable, we're not aware because we're not self-aware that the information is making us uncomfortable. But what we do is we try to push it away so we don't have to feel uncomfortable anymore. Mm -hmm. So when somebody from the outside, as you described, it comes to those in government, says there's a different way to do this. The people in government aren't self-aware, but not because they're in government, but because we're human beings and we're not often self-aware, that they do things a certain way because it makes them feel safe. And somebody from the outside trying to do something differently makes us feel self-doubt and insecure. So the person from the outside, if they want to be heard, first needs to put them put yourself into their shoes and say, how can we discuss this together instead of me telling them that they're wrong, which will inevitably cause a response of, no, you're wrong, when what's really happening is it's not even an argument about who's right and who's wrong. It's a way to deflect information that's making us feel uncomfortable and thus insecure about the way we've always operated and whether that was right or wrong in the first place. And so you come from it if you come from it and you're wrong and I'm right, or this is something different, we have to do this, you get, you're going to get obstruction. But I think you're going to get that not just in politics. You're going to get that in many places in life because we are not, at least not as Americans, I can't tell you about humans in general, but as Americans, we're not self-aware of where our motivations come from and why we do what we do. And so as a result, when something different comes by, it makes us feel nervous because we're starting to realize we don't know why we do what we're doing. And that doesn't make us feel comfortable. Well, it seems to me that a lot of the changes that we're trying to make in this country, not just in this community, is to change that power base of, of white people. Yep. And white people, I think, especially I've found white women over the years, uh, very, very inclusive uh, not very supportive of one another. Um, in fact, almost the opposite. Whereas you have 
communities like black communities, Latino communities that are very, very inclusive with one another. And um, so I think, I think white people need to learn from some of these other groups of people yes. about how to, how to be unified, how to be loyal. How so to here's, be where it gets, here's where it gets difficult, right? Mm-hmm. I'll go back to my human rights campaign story. I'm not LGBTQ. Yet the human rights campaign called me and said, we want to hire you. And I told them I'm not gay. And what did they say? 10% isn't 50%. We need more of you. Well, they concluded, I think, they needed more of me because the way to help cisgender, heterosexual, whatever word you want to use, comfortable with the quality was sadly having to hear it from somebody who belonged to their class or their clique, i.e. me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and at least the human rights campaign concluded that having only LGBTQ people telling non-LGBTQ people that LGBTQ people needed equality was not the way to break through with non-LGBTQ people. So if you're looking for Anglos or whites to understand and to appreciate equality from a non-white perspective, I think the message, I, and I don't think that, I don't think Human Rights Campaign said it had to come exclusively from heterosexual people, but that it has to come from a s- different groups of people, not just the group that you're talking about. It needs to come from a coalition of people, including people who come from their group. And I think in some ways, that's why the Human Rights Campaign or let me forget the human rights campaign, LGBTQ, Helen, think about this. When we met in 2006, do you think we'd be talking about equal marriage in America in 2019? No. Or even no, 2015 when it happened? Did you ever in a million years think that was going to happen? No, no, I just hoped it would. <laughs> right. We never, I never thought of it. We were just trying to kill off a marriage amendment in Indiana in 06 and 07. Who, who would have thought? But the point is what, what, the, what the LGBTQ community deserves all the credit for is it did outreach beyond its own community and found allies beyond its own community and then embraced allies from outside its own community to be spokespeople for equality for the LGBTQ community. That wasn't easy, but no, it wasn't easy at all. You and I are friends. You never questioned my commitment. The community, I'm honored for what the LGBTQ community has done for me because the LGBTQ community never questioned my commitment, even though ostensibly I did not come from your group. Your group understood that it isn't about your group, that even though I'm not LGBTQ, it's our group that Stu Rosenberg, not only does he understand it, but we really believe it. We all believe it, that if LGBTQ does well, Stu, the white heterosexual male, will do well as well. So if he wants to be part of this, we're going to welcome him with open arms. That's how I think you reach out to, you're right, let's be serious, I am the least open-minded demographic in America. Right? I'm a middle-aged white heterosexual male. 
So if you're going to try to persuade a white heterosexual male, part of your coalition is going to have to include white heterosexual males, not exclusively be white heterosexual males, but will have to be a part of it. And in the case of the LGBTQ community, they saw that. You saw that in me. And I'm forever in the debt to the community for never questioning my commitment and for embracing people and for embracing allies. So I can't thank you enough for that. And I think it was the embracing of allies that was the huge pivot point to changing the way this country thinks about LGBTQ. Well, yeah, and it should be obvious to people that 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 it worked, that this is this is what we need. And of course, we need sincere people. I mean, you're a sincere person. And I think that comes across as well. You're not just out there politicizing and active, you know, activating people just for some kind of self aggrandizement. You are you're sincere in, in, in the issues that you uh, you fight for and the people that you fight for. So I think that comes across. So, I mean, we're in your debt as well. Um, what scares me kind of a little bit now is that all, all the different cities and states and, and uh, judges and officials that are trying to overturn everything that we accomplished. Oh, the fight is not over. No. Oh, no, it's my not. gosh. <laughs> the fight is not over. It's not even close. And I can't tell you... I've already given you some philosophy and psychology about the human mind, which you could agree or disagree with. No, I, can't I, agree. Tell you if, I can't tell you if humanity is meant to be tribalistic and that's where our natural proclivity is. But I can tell you this much, the fight is not over and it's never going to be easy and there will never be a day in our lifetimes, at least where we can say, We've achieved full equality and we've won. We need to stop fighting um, because the more things change in society, remember change makes people afraid and it mm -hmm. makes people afraid because they've been able to live in a lack of self-awareness comfort bubble and change threatens that comfort bubble because now they have to really ask themselves is the way things have been really as good as it could have been. And that makes people anxious because if the answer is no, then you have to admit to yourself, I have not been living a full and correct and, and good life if I've been living this life that, as it turns out, was not as good as it should have been and been happy with it. That makes people uncomfortable. So this is always going to be a struggle, but it's a struggle worth fighting for. Oh, yes, we can't give up. That's that's why I, I'm still speaking out <laughs> in oh, one way or another. <laughs> we cannot give up. And we just need to, to well, some of your earlier questions, we need to identify those who are uncomfortable with a new reality but could be open to it based on the right coalitions and the right messages and the right sincerity. And those who unfortunately cannot, who literally, no matter what coalition you have, no matter who the message is from, no matter what the message is, no matter how it's delivered, will never change. They can't overcome their own insecurity to consider change. And you need to, it's hard to figure out who's those who can and who those who can't, but that's always a struggle and you keep on working to try to figure that out. And those who can, you work with, and those who can't, 
you just you have to shrug your shoulders and say you're never gonna we're never all gonna agree on the same thing all the time progress is never easy especially on really really serious issues um, what are you going to be doing in the next couple of years? I know we have a major election coming up in a couple of years, and I know that you work constantly. Um, are there any particular campaigns or areas that you're going to be focused on? So I'm going to be focusing on state legislative races in states where one or both branches can flip to the Democrats where they're currently with the Republicans. And the reason for that. And this isn't all I'm going to do, but this will be my primary focus. The reason for that is by gaining more Democratic seats and flipping a branch of the legislature, if not both, allows you to have more of a seat at the table in the deliberations, including a very important one, which is redistricting boundaries. And so I'll give you an example. In the state of Kansas, they have a Democratic governor. They're in the super minority in both the House and the Senate, but by only one seat in the House and three seats in the Senate. So right now, whenever the governor vetoes a piece of bad Republican legislation, if the Republicans all decide to vote together, they can override every one of the governor's vetoes, making the governor, frankly, a lot less powerful and, and you know, a, ability to do things. You flip two House seats in that state house and make it make it so it's not they're not in the super minority anymore, and she vetoes something. If all the members of the Democratic House stay together, the veto gets upheld, and now suddenly the Democrats have a seat at the table in Kansas government in a way that they don't have today. That would be an example of something I'm going to try to work on for twenty. And actually, and actually, Kansas has always been pretty much a red state. I went to high school in Kansas City. And um, I, you know, grew up in New York City, but then we moved, and it's a long story. But anyway, and Kansas has always been pretty conservative, I know. But um, just elected a Native American lesbian Democrat to Congress. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I do see progress. Well, I have a lot of friends still there that I talk to occasionally, and they're they're all Democrats, but they've always they felt like they've been in the minority for a long time. Well, here's their chance. If we can win back a couple state house seats or four or five state senate seats and the maps are drawn so that your Democratic friends aren't all packed into one district, thus they can't really influence a state house or state senate election, the state will become less right wing crazy the way it has been under the previous governor and the secretary of state who ran for governor. So there's opportunities in places like Kansas. And so I'm looking for states where a few seats here and a few seats there can actually make a huge amount of difference at the state level. Because I mentioned before about Foundation Blue, where people's lives are ch changed most dramatically is on the municipal and state level. It's not on the federal level. So a few state house races in Kansas, of all places, could, could make a whole lot of difference for a whole lot more people than three to five more congressional seats in the U.S. House. So what other states are you focused on? I, I know that you're talking about Indiana. You've been talking about Indiana. Indiana has always intrigued me because Indiana, as you know, we killed the marriage amendment there in 06 with shoestrings and duct tape. Then right. it was killed again in 11 when uh, it was well-financed because people then realized Indiana could be beaten back. Um, 
I believe this is, you know, 2020 isn't the governor year, obviously, but I think the residents of Indiana are starting to get a little annoyed. And I believe there's some state legislative seats and some municipal races that you flip a few of them with an eye towards a bigger move in 2022. So find some places where you can engage in good practices, engage in good grassroots organizing in a sophisticated way, communicate in a way where we're telling our personal story instead of being, I think you put it snobby was the word you put it earlier. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of being snobby and just using DC talking points and saying, you know, like Hillary Clinton, like, I mean, Hillary Clinton ran a presidential race and literally advertised to people, you'd have to be an idiot to vote for this racist, sexist, homophobic scumbag. And guess what people heard from that? Are you calling me an idiot? Like, uh-huh. like yeah. there's, that's, there's ways. Like, I believe we can start engaging in good practices in Indiana in 19 and 20 to allow for us to have a bigger chance. Again, remember, ground up, we do a few good races in 19 and 20, we can use this as a foundation to try to get rid of the governor you have in 2022. And this is going to be like Nevada. This is not going to happen overnight, right? This is not an overnight thing for, for Indiana. But why do we help get J.D. Ford elected? Why did I help do some TV commercials for J.D. Ford? Because either, as, as Senator Ball, Tammy Baldwin once said, either you have a seat at the table or you're on the menu, And for the first time, the LGBTQ community has a seat at the table in the state legislature. Sometimes all it takes is one seat to make a significant difference in policy in a local or state level. Don't you think one of the approaches is that I do hear a lot of rumblings about how Indiana is losing jobs or they're not drawing uh, corporations and various companies that could really uh, boost the economy because we don't have a hate crimes bill and there are companies that don't want to come to a state that doesn't seem to support all of its citizens and therefore all of its employees. And I think that's something that's kind of done some damage to the economy here. And I do hear people talking about that. Absolutely. And so not only is that a good message, but the question becomes who's the messenger. And this is what I mean is there are companies in Indiana and God bless them, who are actually (laughs) willing to say what you just said out loud. And if it's the companies saying this, then the message might get heard better than if it's you or I saying it or a candidate saying it. And this is what I mean about ongoing interaction and engagement. If if we did more, because we did, you might remember in 2006 how we did a lot of corporate outreach Yes. To try to defeat the anti-marriage amendment. Was our campaign solely on corporate outreach? Of course not. But it wasn't us saying to legislators and to voters, oh, but you're losing business because you don't have a hate crime. No, it was businesses saying, We're, we don't like it here because of this. This is not helping us grow our business and create jobs for folks in Indiana. And that there was more, this might be about authenticity. Who's the more authentic message? the actual business person or business that's getting impacted by lack of a hate crime or you or me. In this case, it's the business. And there are businesses who are willing to say these things. And if they say these things now, then when the campaign happens and a candidate says, I'm for a hate crime bill because 
we need to create more jobs in Indiana and this will do so. It sounds, it doesn't sound like a talking point because people have heard from the actual businesses well before the election. Actually, actually our, the governor Holcomb uh, was kind of saying that same thing that uh, I think, you know, cause Indiana really wanted to bring Amazon here. And um, he mentioned that, that we really needed a hate crimes bill because we were losing a competitive edge on the, you know, professional and corporate level uh, in, in competition with other states and other cities. And then, of course, they watered down the hate crimes bill uh, to include, it had to include Christians. Um, and um, it, so I, then I think Holcomb lost, didn't, wasn't, wasn't going to support that bill. And it, it just kind of died out again. Yep. Uh, but uh, I was surprised. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Holcomb. He's better than Pence, in my opinion, by far. Well, it's not saying much. No, it's not. It's not at all. Um, but uh, I was surprised that he, he came out for that. I thought, well, it's an economic issue, but that makes sense. A governor should be concerned about the economy of their state. Yeah, so, I mean, I, it's, but it's going to still it's it's going to take a while. But it needs to be an ongoing conversation, not just during election season. Obviously, Holcomb was willing to say what he said when it was a, not during election season. Yeah, but, right. you know, if the coalition stayed together um, and worked with a broad-based coalition, which means not, which means corporations as well. Sometimes business isn't bad. Sometimes business is good. In this case, there are businesses in Indiana that have always been pro equality publicly helping to beat back bad bills and help positive bills. And I think we've got progress to be made in Indiana, but guess what? Let's find a few of the bigots who are in the state legislature right now, like Mike Delph, and let's get them out of there. That's what we do with JD. I would like to see people stand up to some of these companies that we do have here that are very bigoted. Um, and, and that would be a, a Hobby Lobby for one and Chick-fil-A. Um, I think it, it doesn't demonstrate to your population that you are, you are supporting equality when you either allow these businesses or you support them. So there's no reason you can't do both. Name a business that is good. I mean, I know a few. Um, Name a business that's good. Sure. Well, Eli Lilly, for sure. They're huge. Right. Comments, but there's also, you mentioned Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. And, and Cummins. Cummins and Eli Lilly. Isn't Target pretty good on LGBTQ stuff? They, yes and no. Yes, they are. I think they are overall. But the but point just- is, find the good ones. Find the competitors of the bad ones. And don't just say, don't do the bad ones. Say, do the good ones. If you want to eat fast food, Here's a couple of fast food places we all should go to. We should say, not only should we say shame for those who deserve to be told shame, but we should say thank you for those who deserve to say thank you. We deserve, we deserve a little gratitude. Thank you. Yes, maybe you could argue doing the right thing you shouldn't be deserving gratitude for because it's the right thing, but it never hurts to be nice. It never hurts no, to say thank you. And I guess 
I bet there's an alternative to Hobby Lobby to go to to get whatever it is you're looking to get to. And if you uh, did that, then companies not only see, hmm, we shouldn't be bad, but they can say, hmm, we might actually get extra rewards for being good. That's that's very, very hopeful, positive attitude. <laughs> I like that attitude. Um, I tell people all the time, certain places that I will not spend my money because you should, I, to me, you should not spend your money where they don't support you or well, they would actually discriminate against you right. or in some cases just want you to be gone, period. Um, well, okay, do me a favor. Pick your three businesses right now that you tell people, please don't ever go to. Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, what's your third? Actually, Walmart's one of them too okay. that I have a struggle with. All right, well, that's more of a struggle. I'd say don't do that. I'll give you another one. Don't go to Domino's Pizza. No, I don't. That's right. true, I don't. They're anti-choice. Don't do Domino's Pizza, all right? There's four um, right there. What we ought to be able to do, and I can't do it, and I'm embarrassed I can't, is the name four right now. We said, oh, yeah, you definitely should shop there. The fact that we can't uh, do that is shame on me. Shame on me that I can't do that. Yeah, I'm not positive about some of them. I, I figure some of the big stores like Macy's and Saks and all those, I'm not sure that they – that they discriminate. Although Macy's now Macy's came under fire. What back in the thirties and forties for being very uh, fascist. And uh, so I, I'm not sure that, you know, that. So let me point to somebody to whoever is listening here, go to the human rights campaign scorecard. They actually do a scorecard of businesses that are pro equality, not pro equality. And they have a scorecard. The fact that I haven't reviewed the HRC scorecard recently to know four businesses I should definitely shop at, that's shame on me. So let me do a plug. I don't work the human rights campaign anymore, but I think the scorecard's a valuable scorecard. It's an easy yeah, way to find out companies that are good. But one thing we often do when we're trying to be advocates is we try to find things that are bad. Like, in other words, we punish bad people, but don't reward good people enough. So, eh, you know what? I'm going to, after this call, I'm going to look at the Human Rights Campaign scorecard. I'm going to find four businesses I'm going to go shopping at. Well, I think I'll probably do that too now. <laughs> Actually, I used to watch that scorecard quite a bit. And I suppose since I've retired, I kind of don't as much. But um, I've been getting, I mean, ever since we've had number 45 as president, I mean, I've just been in shock. <laughs> oh, and we're angry, right? We're angry. Yes. We're not, and not just, not just surprised, you know, because... I know that there are people out there who think the way his supporters think. I know that. I live around them because I'm here in Indiana. Um, but I've, I've just been shocked at the, the level of, of meanness and nastiness and rudeness and, and the lack of knowledge about what, what he's even doing. Yeah, um, no, there's, well, but here's, here's the other thing. This is where we, is that sometimes as Democrats, we believe that we know what's best for how people should spend their time. And what I mean by that is, yes, there may be plenty of people out there who aren't as civically engaged or as informed as the chattering class of which I'm probably one, but that doesn't mean they're evil and it doesn't mean they're stupid because who am I to tell somebody how they should spend their time? If they want to spend their time, working three jobs to support their family, who am I to say they should be spending more time be learning about what's going on in public policy instead of doing that? If they want to spend their time 
focusing on the who the Indianapolis Colts going to be playing next year <laughs> and whether they can finally have the talent to do more than just make the playoffs. Who am I to tell them, to tell those, to tell people who decided to prioritize their time in the Indianapolis Colts that they're stupid, they're ill-informed. Like you're not going to persuade anyone on anything by, by it implying or explicitly saying they're uneducated, ill-informed, etc. cetera. Instead, or calling them deplorables. Or calling them deplorables. Because they're not, like, now again, there's some people, I'm not saying there aren't people who will never be convinced about our view of equality. I'm not saying, mm-hmm. but there are some, in other words, there are some people who voted, who, who by being called deplorables and were told you had to be an idiot to vote for Trump did so not because they agreed with Trump, but because they didn't like being called idiots. And my yes. point being is, if we keep on calling people idiots, then they will continue to not support the causes we believe in, not because they may not support our causes, but because they're, we're calling them idiots. And we often do this, like, oh, if we just educated the electorate more. And I'm like, wait a minute, who made you God? as to who this, who, what people need to know and when they need to know it. Point is, find where they are. If they're going to Indianapolis Colts games and that's what they care about, eh, maybe that's where my digital advertising uh, is helpful because we do digital advertising to people who like the Indianapolis Colts. If that turns out to be an audience you want to hit, so mm-hmm. you're already on a web page reading about the Indianapolis Colts and they see an advertisement on something else and that's where they are. Right. There's ways to reach them other than just calling them idiots. And I'm not saying you were calling them idiots, but I am saying as Democrats, we sometimes do call voters idiots in ways in ways like literally calling them deplorables, which is explicit. Or another way saying if we just educated the voters, that's just a different way of calling somebody an idiot. And it's not helpful. It's just not helpful. So what we have to try to do is be positive friendly and open at all times. Yep. You don't have to accept people for what they believe, but you have to accept them for being people. Right. And being part of our population and part of our communities. And and it's it's hard sometimes when when people come across with really bigoted views or nastiness. It's really hard to remain being nice. I was raised to be nice to people. I was raised in a political family. Um, and it's even for me, I'll, I'll come home, you know, and, and say all sorts of things. But I try to always treat people respectfully. And I think that's the that's all about unity and coming together. Yeah, well, my argument would be if a bigot calls you a name to your face, they're never going to be with you. And if for your own re- purposes, you choose to punch him in the nose or walk away, that's your own decision. Okay. <laughs> But just make sure the person you've chosen to punch in the nose has actually said something bigoted instead of said something out of anger because you've done something or or you've done something inadvertently or something has been done from an outside source that's causing this to happen. Sure. There are plenty of bigots in this world we are never going to persuade. But there are others who are just afraid of what is going on and they don't know why, they don't know how to handle it. And having a conversation with that person by saying, well, you're an idiot, will probably cause them to say something back to you that's probably not gonna be very nice. And it might even be bigoted. 
But you know, you know, calling somebody an idiot does not usually lead to a nice response. No, it's usually it, it it's nice to try to reach people and make them understand how much better we would be if we all not necessarily all agree on everything, but come together and support one another. Yep. I think that's that's what we have to convince people to do. And, and it, that takes a lot of and the bigots will be isolated and the bigots can be bigots and okay. right, exactly. But, well, well, Stu, it's been, you know, it's been great talking with you and, and, and hearing your opinion and, and where you're coming from on, on all these issues. Um, I'd like to talk again closer to uh, the next uh, election in 2020. It'd be great. And I assume you're probably going to be around Indiana a little bit. So I maybe will we'll be. see each other. Well, let me make you make one modification of that. You should also have me on your program right before the municipal elections in Indiana. Yes. Yes. That'd be a good idea. Right. Good idea. Yes. That's one way that we get people more engaged in municipal elections is by having conversations about elections other than right before an even year election. That's right. So we'll, we'll, we'll schedule, schedule you in. So I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go back to your nice, peaceful, romantic weekend. And, uh, <laughs> And thank you very much to your uh, partner or girlfriend for uh, understanding. Oh, she's very supportive, so don't worry. She's good. thrilled we're doing this. And um, we'll talk to you again soon. All right, thanks. Thanks so much. Welcome to the newest adventure with Carol Fisher and Helen Harrell. I'm Helen Harrell. And we are um, getting, getting into podcasting. We're trying the electronic uh, way instead of being uh, on air and, and affiliated with a station in particular. We figure we'll have a little more freedom. We are broadcasting from Bloomington, Indiana, but that does not mean all our shows will be about Indiana or Bloomington. We wanted to kick off the show today, well, I did, especially with someone who caught my eye a while ago, a person who's much younger than me, but has really stepped forward and is, I think, a voice and a person that we need, not only in Bloomington, but in this country. So I want to welcome Vox Booker. Welcome, Vox. It's, Thank you. It's nice to be here. And it's nice to meet you in person. I mean, I know we're kind of friends on Facebook and all that, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, I wonder if you'd just start off a little bit telling, uh, telling our listeners about yourself. Personally or as the organization? Um, but, well, personally first. Are you from Indiana? I am from Indiana. I was born in Columbus, Indiana. Uh, I started high school there, graduated from Seymour, Indiana. My family's been in the southern Indiana area for about 160 plus years. Wow, that's a long time. It I've is. been here 40. <laughs> that's a long time to me. Well, it is a long time. It's um, older than you are probably. Um, but you are involved in a lot of things. You've stepped forward on a lot of issues in, the, in, in, in Bloomington, which in my opinion, at least, need to be addressed. And um, I think that's why you caught my eye. One thing, you are involved with Black Lives Matter. I am. And I don't know if you actually have a title. I know you have group leadership, which is a, a, a good concept that's new to a lot of, probably a lot of folks and a lot of organizations, but it's not to me. I think it's a really good way to, to organize a, a group. So, uh I've been filling a role as a spokesperson for uh, BLM. Uh, I started out as the organizer moving the group from uh, solely being a Facebook-based group into, so to say, uh, the real world. Um, but no, we, we do co-lead. We have a council of leaders. I'm one of, the, uh, one of those members of the council. I don't have any more say-so than any of them. So how do, how do you make 
for people who say, okay, how do they make decisions? What are some of your goals and how do you carry them out? So those are, so those are some big questions. And the decision making, <laughs> even when I say that we'll counsel folks, tell, still tend to see us as uh, a body that just simply votes and, and moves in majority rule. Uh, we don't try to do that. We try to reach a group consensus. Uh, sometimes it means that I, I have to be less concerned about my own interest and, and, and more concerned about the group dynamics as a whole. Uh, and, and that changes how we move and interact and even some of our goals. But uh, part of the mission is that, you know, our, our goal is to uh, confront the systemic racism that's present in our society and even flourishes. And we've instituted a, a lot of different programs to do that, whether it be the direct action of disruption that we started the year off at that uh, caused such a hoopla and, and deservingly, or whether it be uh, us writing, you know, uh, reviewed articles, uh, hosting films, doing political events, uh, meeting with elected officials. Did you have a lot of response from the elected officials that you asked to meet with? For this last event, the seat at the table, we had a good response. We wish we could have got more Republican buy-in, but we did get some Republican buy-in, which uh, a lot of the Democratic groups told us not to even try because we wouldn't get any buy-in. Not only did uh, the well, you can't listen to people that say that. <laughs> I hear you. I try to. I try to uh, not just maintain the status quo. I try to. I try to challenge that, and, and BLM tries to challenge that. So we reached out to the the Republican Party. Not only did they have members that participated, they also provided financial backing. Well, that's that's good. Yeah, that's they did a good it thing. Equal to the Democrats. Do you have a large group here in in Bloomington? I, it seems to me that Bloomington, you know, groups tend to stay kind of small. So we have about. Uh, with the core council and the subcommittee leads, there are about 10 of us that are very, very active. Uh, at the larger group, we have about 80, 60 to 80 at-large members. I'm not sure the, the actual numbers. What does one do to join? So it's really more you, you sign a document that isn't legally binding. There's no dues. The document basically stipulates that you understand that it's a black-led space. And the scrutiny that, that black-led groups encounter and also that if we're working as part of a coalition, that you also honor the mission of our coalition partners. Sure, that's simple enough. No dues, how do you carry out events? I mean, it seems like any organization kind of needs funding. So we fund events as they happen. We, we reach out to uh, business owners. We reach out to uh, our membership, to allied groups in the community. Uh, I'm trying to, uh, but a lot of the, like, so the, the Dems gave us money this year, uh, some business owners uh, um, showing up for uh, racial justice, Surge gave us money, uh, and I know I'm leaving some folks out, but those are the well, ones that, okay. that, that just hit me. <laughs> you can't, okay, let's bring up an issue a little more political with Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. I personally think it's an excellent organization, concept, uh, basis for political action needed. But then you have people who say, well, white lives matter and blue lives matter and all this. And you want to say, well, sure, ideally all lives should matter. Uh, we don't want good cops killed. We don't want good white people killed. And when I say good, I mean, you know, that's my own bias, of course, coming down. But um, why is black lives matter 
important and, and these other groups that are kind of copying that they're taking away from the power they're taking away from the influence maybe. it is a way that we silence people um, with the narrative of black lives matter it, it differs from the, the phrase blue lives matter for example I have family and friends that work in aspects of law enforcement sure. but they're not blue they're, they're people who come from various walks of lives but they chose to pick up a profession, but they cannot leave that profession at any time. Uh, my existence as a black man in America is, isn't something that I can just leave when I choose. It's inherent to my being, and it affects how other folks engage with me in every way. Uh, when it comes to tackling this all lives matter rhetoric, I think in some ways the proof is in the pudding. You never see anyone uh, saying all lives matter when a, a young white man who's been slain by the police and is found unjustified. The all white lives matter folks don't come out. It's just a way to silence us. Uh, we say black lives matter because even though all lives have their inherent worth and value, black lives right now and throughout American history have been the target of systemic and state violence. Absolutely, you can see that every day in the news. I've seen it since I was, well, I think when I became, you know, I grew up in metropolitan areas. So when I came to Bloomington, it was like, oh, I had never been in such an all white environment. I really hadn't. It was a shock to me. It still, it still is actually, because I'd like to see, which is going to lead me probably into my next issue here, is the, May, the upcoming mayoral campaign. And the fact that I'm, uh, Quite personally, I'm tired of just having a white slate. I want to see people of color. I want to see people of, uh, I don't care what gender people are, what nationality, but we need to be diversified. And instead of talking about, I mean, I was at IU for 34 years. We talked about diversification for probably those 34 years. To me, you don't have to talk about it if you're really diversified. It just, it is, it exists. And so we need to have candidates like yourself um, and um, other people that are out there. I'm sure there are other people out there who can run for mayor and run for city council and that kind of thing. Um, is there anything Black Lives Matter is focusing on in that direction, or you personally, or friends of yours, or? So that, those are nuanced questions. Black Lives Matter, uh, I'm sure, is going to continue to be political. Mm -hmm. uh, we found a great deal of influence and leverage that way, and we've in, in my mind, we've hoped to push the uh, political uh, paradigm to the left a bit. I always like to say the heart is a little to the left. I like to see our politics be that same way. Um, this year where we produced our voters guides, uh, this last voter guide was, we had over 12,000 unique views to our site that hadn't been there before to, to view the voters guide for the seat of the table. It was viewed over 10,000 times online and that's just what we can see from our site. Uh, so those things have value, people pay attention, and our elected officials notice that people are paying attention. Uh, Bloomington being such a town that's, that's led by Democrats, folks often lose accountability to their constituents. And hopefully one of the things that Black Lives Matter is doing and will continue to do is spark that interest and hold those officials accountable to their constituents. So when you get to me personally, I think it, it's time that I take a position of leadership or at least ask the public to, to entrust me in a position of leadership. I, I've been in some of the halls of power, whether it's meeting with the mayor or in 
city councilors folks have often seen publicly. And I've been dismayed by uh, elected officials seeming inability or just disinterest in, in actually meeting the constituents where they are, meeting the people, listening to our concerns, and not only listening, but responding. Uh, it's that mutual respect, the thing that you and I have right now. I don't only want to be listened to. I need to, to, to be validated. I need you to hear that you hear my concerns. If I tell you that I'm worried for my safety, for the life uh, of black children in my community, I need mm -hmm. you to, to hear that and not just look at me blankly or, or jot down notes uh, to respond later, I need to feel that empathy, that human connection. Absolutely. I understand that completely. I, um, I was thinking about, uh, I, I know I read in the paper and somewhere else probably too, that when you met with the city council that they kind of dismissed you. They didn't want to hear what you had to say. I think that was over the, uh, the bear cat. Yes. And that bear cat is kind of a significant issue to me. In the beginning, I know a lot of police forces have them, and I suppose if they're used in the right way, you know, to protect the police officers. But as we know, policing in so many communities is not, has not been fair, always targets black people, black people in particular. I know, I know other people as well, but in particular in black people in this country. I think when I first became aware of what was going on, I did not grow up in a family that was racist. I were very mixed, uh, gener you know, generational um, ethnic backgrounds, Native American. Um, so I, I didn't grow up with any overt racism or prejudice. I never heard anybody call anybody names or anything like that. And it was when I was about 11 or 12 when they integrated the schools in the South and in Arkansas, and I saw the police and the fire hoses and the dogs turned on children trying to go to school. And I remember running in and asking my dad, I said, is this, is this real? Is this real? Is this a movie or something? You know, I was just, and he said, no, it's real. It's really happening. And so I said, why? Why don't they want him to go to school? Why can't kids go to school? What's wrong? And from that moment on, my dad sat down and talked to me because he helped integrate neighborhoods in Kansas City. He um, actually had FBI support a couple of times standing up for racial issues, protecting him because um, he was in the political arena. And he, he said, you have to get out there. You have to speak up. And I said, well, we need to speak up. People need to be educated. Everybody needs to go to school. Everything needs to be fair. This is horrible. I, we don't turn dogs and hoses and things on people. Well, it still goes on. It's still going on after all these years. And I was one of those people that in the 60s, I was a civil rights activist. I did actually march in, in DC. And I didn't go down south. I have to admit, I was not brave enough to go down south. I was actually afraid. Um, to go down south, but I did protest in other cities that I was in. I worked with the Black Panthers in D.C. and their breakfast program, all the violence they were credited with, mm -hmm. right? They were doing a breakfast program for kids. Well, um, that, yeah, that's a, that's a, a lot to unpack. And but what, what I was, I was just going to lead up to briefly was that during the 70s and 80s, I thought we had made some progress, some progress. And I have been devastated in my old age here to look at what's happening, what's been happening gradually and eroding and eroding over the years. And now it never was fixed, never was fixed. It's never been, it's never been fair, it's never been just, it's never been right. And when I hear people say they won't listen to you, that makes me so angry. You can, you can ask my partner. Sometimes I jump up and down and scream and holler. Okay. Well, I think 
as far as policing, it, it's always been biased. America, it's been said, loves black culture but hates black people. You, you're not going to find a, a history of, of a single black hero and a single black American hero uh, that hasn't had some negative interaction with the police. And, and oh, definitely. <laughs> that's, a, that's a dismal reality. Um, when we look at, at, at these, this militarization like Bearcats, uh, at every thing that I can think of in my head, whether it be Standing Rock or Ferguson or a myriad of other events, you see these, these Bearcats terrorizing folks, shooting them, whether it's shooting indigenous folks on their land in sub-freezing conditions with water cannons or tear gassing uh, the citizens of Ferguson. These military, this military equipment, and it is military equipment. We've mm -hmm. given the Syrian rebels the, these vehicles just like this. Represent a sign, and, and when someone comes to someone in leadership and says this sign means this to me, this symbol, uh, exactly. because symbols have tremendous power in all, in, in, in all cultures. When this symbol represents my oppression and makes me fearful, and you close off your, your ear, you, you, you're blind to that input, that doesn't just only damage black people, uh, it damages an entire community because black people are in every aspect of communities. Um, I've been, I've just really been shaken to the core uh, of how criticism has been received uh, in, in the process. So it's one of those reasons why I feel like I, I myself uh, have to step up and, and, and folks have asked me to step up. Good. They should. I, I am appalled when people, well, you know, when you look at our history, of course, you have a government that was founded by a bunch of white men who didn't let anybody else vote. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how it started. Now, yes, they may have created a constitution and um, uh, articles and things like that that were supposed to be equitable, but of course they all say men. They never included women in the, in the concept. And of course it didn't include the Native Americans who were already here and anybody else that came. And it's been used consistently, that between that and the Bible, used consistently to justify the white power. Now I feel like, and I don't know if I'm right or not, I feel like this, this really adamant white power movement is, is relatively small but dangerous. And they've always been, I mean my introduction mm -hmm. to coming here, I lived in a, I had an, a, a house that I rented and I rented to some friends of mine who are a black and white couple and the Klan burned that house down with me in it. I barely got out. That was my introduction to Indiana of living here. And I've never quite gotten over that, that fear and that terror. So when somebody, st somebody who stands up for racial equity, uh, whether they're white or black, is in danger. And black people, are, you're right, black people are always in danger. I think. I feel that way. I really do. I hear you. Um, you know, the, the reality of America is that the phrase all men are created equal and endowed by the uh, creator with certain inalienable rights was pinned by slave owners. Mm -hmm. and, and that dichotomy of American society has existed in, in one way or another way, whether it be slavery, Jim Crow, or uh, you know this era of, of mass imprisonment all throughout American history. I, 
I guess it's often easy for us to talk about, uh, when we talk about white supremacy, to talk about overt racism, uh, folks like the Klan. I, I understand the impact of the Klan and the terror that they've evoked. Like I said, my family's been here for 160 years. Um, but I think today, just as dangerous, and, and maybe always as the Klan, all the folks that, that King decried as the white moderate, yes. uh, the folks that say, I believe with you in BLM Sard, we believe with you in our goal, but we can't condone you, your methods of direct action. Yes. Uh, that feel like they can paternalistically set a timetable for another man's freedom. And I can't live on tomorrow's bread. I need to be free today. And, and whether I have to, to, to go to the halls of the city or to the, to the mayor's doorstep, I'm going to lift my voice for freedom. And you should. And I'm glad you do. Um, one of the things that I wonder about is I, I have a, uh, like, not just a black friend, I have several black friends, but one black friend in particular down, lives down south. Mm -hmm. And she told me one time, she said that my, her mother always told her to watch out when you have a bunch of white people who stand up in front of you and say they're for you, watch your back. Yes. <laughs> and I thought, wow. I mean, that hit me because I was probably 20 when, you know, when she told me that. And I thought that's how some people, that's how black people live all the time. And I don't, I don't know how we get through to people and, and sensitize. I think I hear a lot of white people. I see them on Facebook. I see the white groups that are, you know, stepping up and doing things. They still don't seem to get it. They still don't seem to get it because they'll only go so far. Yes, and, and I think you've hit it in, in, in several ways there. Uh, we talk about lately, we've talked about the, prob the problematic use of the term ally. Folks like to say they're allied. Uh, but the problem with allied is partially that allies aren't actually affected by the struggle. They've chosen to align themselves with someone affected by the struggle. And that misses the intersectionality of our society. Mm -hmm. uh, King called it the inescapable network of mutuality. What affects me affects you. If I'm being oppressed, uh, it's going to, to move over to you in some way, whether it be that Today, your grandchildren may be in school with my children, and they have to deal with the anger that my uh, children face, or they have to slow the classroom down because my children have all these fears, you know, having nightmares, or, or whatever the, the issue may be, or uh, live in systemic poverty, uh, and unable to keep up. And so now the whole classroom is slowed down, and our society is intersectional in those types of ways. So the notion of being an ally is sometimes problematic because mm -hmm. you don't understand. You're, you're not allied with me. You're in this struggle because it's more, it's just, uh, and it affects you. It doesn't matter if I uh, am nice or mean to you. You're going to stand up for justice simply because it's just. Exactly. The other thing is a lot of folks uh, feel like they're stepping up when they, they say, okay, you know, we really need some black leadership, so let's some, promote some black people. But that's only half the battle, because you may have put black folks in power, Lincoln may have freed, freed the slaves, but do you provide them infrastructure? Are you willing to file you, you co-workers or subordinates who are racist and don't like the fact that you put black people in power? It's not enough to just put them there. It, you have to support them once they're in the place. Mm -hmm. And that's where America often fails. Uh, you see you see it so often with black women, where you put black women in a woke environment, they get promoted to the boss, and people, um, 
you know, disparage them, whether it's from the hair, uh, from the tone of the voice, if they're too loud, uh, the way they enter a room, every aspect of their identity uh, to, to how they send an email is questioned. Mm-hmm. And we allow those structural dynamics to play in all the time. So we need white folks to, to not only help promote black people, and, 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 and if you're not going to be willing to promote black folks, at least don't stand in the way, because mm-hmm. we'll get there on our own as long as you know no one else hinders us. <laughs> uh, but it's creating a whole society and, and standing up against those folks. You know, I've been working with people in, in city and county government throughout the year, and sometimes I'm dismayed by some of the treatment I receive, or someone says, hey, uh, this person in my office is, is really turning around. They, you know, they used to, to say all lives matter uh, and, and, and didn't believe that, you know, we should be promoting black folks, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, I'm working on them. I don't necessarily want you to work on them because in 2018, if they haven't got it together, I want you to just send them out the door yes. and put someone in who I'm not going to have to work against. I'm not going to have to, to be the boss or, uh, to do a job and work against this person because that's a barrier that everyone else doesn't have. I think that's an excellent point, an excellent point. I have to say all the years that I was at IU, I have to say personally, and I, I don't think I've been discriminated against like black people, mm-hmm. not in the same degree at all, but because I stood up for people, I did get about a, a lot of backlash. I would start being treated like they were treating the person that I was defending. And so it takes a certain kind of person to stand up to that. And I don't think a whole lot of people are willing to go that far. They just aren't. I, some people, whether they're cowards or not, I don't know if that's the right word. Some people just don't have the wherewithal to stand up and keep fighting. Um, I think people can do things in different ways. If they don't have that strength, they can vote. They can speak up. Well, some people don't want their name in the paper either. But um, it's, it's always been frustrating to me. One thing I find very, very frustrating is that one group of people who's been discriminated against will then discriminate against another group. Yes. I think if, if you have suffered discrimination in any way for your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, whatever, why does that compassion not carry over to other people and to understanding? That, that just amazes me. Well, I think it's about systems of power. Let me, uh, to, to pick on uh, white women, because you're a white woman in the room, uh, which whitish i'll take that okay we've had and we're in america we're all racially diverse whether we if you've been here we really are generations uh but white women uh, as whiteness is defined will vote for we saw it in the south will vote for a a man that they wouldn't trust leaving their teenage daughter with Mm -hmm. and when when white women are willing to uh uphold the patriarchy uh to their own detriment simply because it, amain- it, it, it keeps firmly established the system of white supremacy. Uh, they have more allegiance to whiteness than to womanhood. Mm-hmm. And, and those are problematic things. We see it uh, in, in, in society with gay folks. Uh, a lot of folks that are, that are gay have been, I can't imagine there's a gay person who hasn't been discriminated against. Um, but at the same time, we see that racism is, is still pervasive uh, amongst Very gays. Very much so. So it's this tribalism. Uh, one of the biggest things that you, I see it manifest, and I saw it today, all these memes on Facebook where someone says, uh, 
this person in, in an excuse of language because I don't like the term. This person is a drug addict and they can get Narcan. Why can't diabetics get insulin? I'm I'm a diabetic, so I can understand that. But I need to understand that. Why am I more outraged that some other poor person is getting what they need, and not more outraged by the billionaires who are getting more billions, while we're both over here struggling? Sure. So. We're not a very generous society as much as we like to say we are. At, at Christmas time, the holidays, we like to give out toys and make a big deal about giving, making an example, actually, of the kids who don't have very much. Yes. And, it, it, and the news around here especially covers the, the black children somewhere that don't have as much, which automatically sets them apart as some kind of failure. Mm-hmm. I, I am outraged by that. I think if you're going to give things to people and help them out, you don't have it all over the news. You do it, you do it nicely, quietly, gently, and fairly. Yes. Because for one thing, you don't want to make them feel like a spectacle, and and, and you don't want it to be about self-aggrandizement. Um, one of the things I did here in Bloomington was I I ran the homeless shelter, uh, managed one of the homeless shelters for about a year. If you want to talk about uh, magnanimous gestures, I saw more amongst the poor who would be willing to to have two pairs of socks, but. Uh, give one of those pairs to someone coming in than I did amongst city government. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right there. Absolutely right. It's the it's also the poor that adopt all the animals. That's off the subject. But dogs and cats that need homes. It's more it's poorer people that do that. It's not the rich that go out and. Anyway, I've always noticed that. But I mean, our society has always been stratified. It's it's a class system. And, and that's why I am really, I keep getting, because I hear from a lot of people in Bloomington, uh, you know, you're going to support this person for mayor, that person for mayor. And I keep waiting for somebody that I really can support for mayor. I, and I'm not totally, let me say this, I'm not totally against Bloomington. I like some of the development that's gone on in Bloomington. I don't know if we needed all these really expensive apartments for all the students, but I like the fact that the town is is growing and expanding and uh, little things like there's uh, markings for pedestrians on the streets mm-hmm. now and things just little things like that but I certainly don't like the lack of transparency and I don't want to see the same old people and and this is my generation and some people a little younger than my generation I'm tired of seeing the same old people with the same old answers yes so one of the things that the mayor has indicated, uh, our current mayor, John Hamilton, has indicated is that he sees Bloomington as a destination city. Uh, when you talk about uh, a lot of this infrastructural improvement, uh, it's great for, for the infrastructure improvements uh, that help the people that live here in the community already. But what we need to n- not do is make sure that we're not leveraging the future of our community upon an engine of gentrification mm-hmm. uh, upon mm-hmm. the displacement of the citizens that we already have in the community. Well, that's already happened, I well, think. Well, it is happening, and, and we're seeing so much uh, inequity, whether it be food insecurity, uh, poverty, uh, substandard housing conditions, uh, folks struggling with transportation because they can't live close to uh, the city's center where a lot of jobs are uh, because they can't afford to live there so they have to try to rely on public transportation which doesn't run on Sundays here. Well they've also moved like the community center and the community kitchen and things on, yes. on far, farther out of town out of the city. I mean it's not a big city I know but if you're homeless and you're pushing all your stuff in some little cart and you have to walk everywhere and it's freezing cold 
It would be nice if those amenities were closer. Well, I would like to see the city administration take the same type of consorted uh, focused effort that they have taken on projects like the mill. Uh, they, they spent millions of dollars to build this mill. They put it right next to city government. It's a shining beacon of the city. I would like to see that same type of effort and concern shown to all the groups of our community. I, I, I want to see uh, if you're going to put the, the, the best of folks uh, right by city you know, the, the city central, I think you should make sure that, that you put the, the folks that could be called the least of these, the people who are currently experiencing homelessness, uh, the people who may be dealing with uh, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. All those folks should be just as important. Well, you're absolutely right. That's the thing that I think about all the time. I mean, I do hear a lot of criticism about the uh, the, the apartments that true nobody can afford I mean because they count on three or four students going together and paying the rent and nobody can afford it um, and I know that well let's face it Bloomington is just would just be a, another small southern Indiana town if it weren't for the university so the university does have a major major influence on everything that's done here and sometimes that's a, to the detriment of the people who live here yes sometimes IU is, is, is that mixed blessing too often it is a succubus upon the community mm -hmm. uh, I come from Columbus I mentioned uh, there we have Cummins uh, Cummins provides like IU uh, good middle-class jobs for a lot of our citizens. But the thing that we see in Cummins is the level of philanthropy is, is often unmatched amongst other companies of size. We can do a lot of infrastructure projects. We can maintain uh, buildings that would otherwise be abandoned because Cummins steps up and, and handles that duty. I would like to see an organization in Bloomington that had that same level of commitment to uh, the community, whether it's uh, helping make workforce housing affordable, uh, whether it's helping um, bear some of the burden of, of structural improvements that are going to benefit everyone in the society. You're right. I mean, there, there were a lot of factories here when I first came here. I think, well, is Otis Elevator still here? I think there's a small part of Otis Elevator maybe still here. I'm not sure. But GE was here. RCA was here. And, of course, they were all on the west side of town. And I don't know that they – I'm sure they contributed to things like the United Way campaign and things like that and probably to the tax base. But um, they didn't do – Cummins actually has been a big supporter of the LGBT community over the years. Um, in Indy and in Columbus and actually here when we had our radio show for a while. Um, but these, these come, now we have all these tech companies. They're small. I think some of them paid well, but they're, I don't think they're going to be a solid base for doing something like you're talking about. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I have heard Bloomingtonian people say they didn't want those big factories here because of the kind of workers and um, that I guess that's a, an economic thing, uh, blue collar, as we say, or factory workers. Um, and so some people were really glad they're gone. Some people still won't go to the west side of town, which is developed and actually where I live now, over kind of southwest or northwest, um, because that's the not so acceptable side of town. And it's it's growing, it's expanding, and and it's not. But there, what you're saying is that there, you know, it's it's always isolating groups. We don't like this group for this reason. We don't like this group. I couldn't even find um, when I first came here. I remember I, I got a job in McCloskey, who was the mayor then uh, in his uh, administration, 
I got a, a part-time job there. And I worked with a black woman, and I asked her, I said, okay, you're the, about the second black person I've seen since I came to this town. <laughs> Is there a black community here? And she said, yeah, we have a small neighborhood, you know, and I, I know that black people live around the town now, but back then it was this neighborhood, and I went around and I thought, wow, and I didn't ever see anybody employed anywhere except in McCloskey's administration. I didn't see anybody working in Kmart or any stores like cashiers, checkout, grocery stores, nothing. And I thought, what in the world do they do? And she told me, she moved to California a few years after that. She told me, she said, well, everybody moves to Chicago or Indy. When they grow up, they don't stay here. And I thought, well, that's not building a base for black people here, for black students, for, you know, families. And so, you know, that was kind of my first and I, I still see Bloomington as having, as Bloomington, Bloomingtonians kind of idealize themselves, I think. They think we're, we're a liberal town, we're the only liberal area in Indiana, and that makes us, you know, all right. Well, liberal doesn't always get it. I think, because uh, you hit the nail on the head, so to say, I think we saw at the seat of the table that even amongst Democrats, there was a, a great, a great uh, variety of folks. Um, Bloomington does espouse itself to be the city on the hill of uh, progressive politics and values. But the, the truth of that is anything but. And, and, and when I say that, I, I'm going to talk about numbers. I'm going to tell you that if, if you look at uh, folks in jail, you're going to see a four to five uh, times representation. If you're going to look at folks who are living in government housing, you're going to see a four to five representation. If you look at police use of force in our community, you're going to see a four to five uh, times representation. If you look at in school uh, suspension and expulsion, you're still going to see that four to five times representation among blacks. And, and, and this disparity is, is so pervasive. The only reason that it's allowed to be maintained is simply because there are so few black folks here. Now, we can talk about schools. If you look at Columbus and you look at black students, you don't find those same disparities that you find in Bloomington. And Columbus is considered to be a more moderate community. Bloomington has insulated itself and, and become an echo chamber in so many ways that, that, we, that we only hear our own accolades. Well, we don't have enough folks questioning the status quo. That's what BLM tried to do this year. It's what I hope to continue as well. Unless we intentionally root out these systemic inequalities, they're going to persist. Uh, I, I think that if you really looked at the data, you might find that among cities of size, Bloomington may be the most racist city in Indiana. I, I, I have been known to say that um, because of the naivete, if, if nothing else, but people just, I mean, that's why I've, I've kind of made some enemies here because I'll say, they'll say, well, you're an outsider. Yeah, yeah, I know, that's why you treat me differently because I'm not from Indiana. And so I'll always be treated differently. But don't you value an outsider's view of things? That's what's so important in having people come here, whether it's through the university or through jobs or whatever, to evaluate and say, hey, I think this could be done differently. I think we need representation here. I think we need to look at this. And they don't, don't want to hear really resistant to outsiders' opinions. I'm still called an outsider 40 years later. You know, I've been And here, a troublemaker. I've been, I, can, I can emphasize. I've been here <laughs> six or seven years. I moved here because I took a job with a company called Centerstone, working as a rehabilitation specialist, dealing with uh, co-occurring mental illness and addictions. 
uh, and generally those folks were experiencing homelessness. Uh, when I had that job, no one was concerned that I was an outsider. Uh, when I was running the homeless shelter, no one ever considered me an outsider. It was suddenly that when I uh, dare speak up and reproach uh, the leaders, the elite of the city, suddenly I became that outsider yes. and my voice was less important than the folks uh, who were established in the community. And my entire time that I've been in Bloomington, I've been giving back to Bloomington uh, in a way that isn't grandiose, isn't public spectacle. Folks That's may service and dedication. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Folks may just just see me now in this loud and out way, but all society is full of folks who, who struggle every day very quietly and very heroically to mm-hmm. make all communities safer and better. We can talk about how great police are. I have members of my family that work in law force. I, I appreciate police officers. But I also realize the importance of folks like social workers, uh, community advocates, folks that work in CASA. The, all society is full of heroes. And we need to make sure that we are recognizing everyone and not just giving some type of celebrity status to one group or another group. You know, you don't see uh, social workers out there talking about clipboard lives matter. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so to go back on this notion of blue lives matter, all that one aspect of also society is less important than another or should be prioritized, uh, stratified in one way or the other is ludicrous, but it keeps happening. And, and I don't know if I've ever lived in a city that had so much issue of class as Bloomington, where, where folks say, oh, uh, you know, uh, that person's a townie. We talk about that division between town and gown. Um, the division between the haves and the have-nots. The folks that live on the east side or close to downtown, what are the Elm Heights is a good neighborhood. Uh, oh, so crowded. <laughs> to folks that live on the west side. We need a city government uh, that is representative of all of Bloomington. And I have never been more sure of anything that if you create an equitable society that takes care of a community's most vulnerable, I think everyone will be taken care of. Well, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. That, to me, would be the ideal goal for any place. And I think um, I have... I, I, I could just repeat what you said, which is I, I'm not going to do, is just that Bloomington is so um, proud of itself. And, but, you know, you've probably heard the expression, a big frog in a little pond. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that in the, in the um, LGBT community, for instance, which I worked with for a long time and, and was part of somewhat, there's so little reward in a community this size. And everybody... Everybody wants to get that reward or that award or that recognition. And what I don't think people realize is that, and and I've always said this, that black people are much more group, family, tribal organized and focused. And that's why we made the progress you have, really, seriously, and and survived, survived. Um, That white people are so busy fighting amongst themselves all the time and trying to one-up one another and Sometimes the only way they can feel better about themselves is then to put another group down and it it, I'm not sure how we get it to stop but like people like you stepping up But I know that some of the people that are in in running this community have been doing it for years with the same answers the same thoughts the same ideas the same stoicism Um, and I haven't voted for them. Of course, I didn't live in Monroe County for a long time. I lived out in the country because I wanted um, to raise dogs. 
I got you. I think you, you touched on a lot of the issue of Bloomington. Um, I don't want to, to, to keep touching on Dr. King, but I was, I was uh, watching some well, speeches he's today. He's one of the most valuable people that ever lived. <laughs> yes, but he's, he, he's been... He wasn't perfect. <laughs> he's been whitewashed, and, 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 and American right. society uh, yes. loves a, a dead black icon because they'll suddenly safe. I liked Malcolm X. That's good. Most folks at the time. Oh, I loved Malcolm X. I didn't like Malcolm or Martin. I, I you know, I, I, I like them both. Uh, our society likes to contribute a lot of the woes of the black community on um, some type of moral lacking that black people have. And right. <laughs> uh, this question was was posed to King that every other group that has come to America has somehow successfully uh, managed to integrate and move ahead. And why haven't black people done that? And, and, and the insightful answer that he gave is, is America made black skin a stigma and no other group has been so walked down, uh, for, whether it be slavery or mass incarceration uh, or even redlining. No other group of people have so passionately been persecuted by American society. Black people are surviving and excelling in spite of the bigotry and oppression in America. They also didn't immigrate voluntarily. Yeah. But one of the things that if, if we would actually teach black history, which I've been screaming about for years also, is so many in, inventions, creation, creative things that have happened in our culture, uh, from music and art and fashion to hairstyles, which is the thing mm -hmm. that, you know, I, whatever people talk about. Um, household inventions, all kinds of things that black people never got credit for, ever, until now, finally, it's coming out. I, I'm on some list that I get some historical updates, and I think, you know, there were wealthy black people. There were wealthy black business people, both men and women. And it's because they've been not recognized. If you leave somebody out, it's like, I. To me, discrimination is like not allowing someone to use their talents, their abilities, their knowledge, not allowing them the space. Like we'll say, you come to our meeting, come to our organization, join, we want you here, but then not let you do anything. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry, the deep breath there. I think, I think, I think you, you said so much powerful thing that there used to be, and there still are, but I mean, there used to be such strength and power in black communities, and, and also that once we integrate, uh, they allow us to be there, but they don't allow us to participate in leadership. I think that that is that the tale of American society. We can look at uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. Our nation used to be full of black schools and black teachers uh, and push black students to excel. And then we had, you know, Brown versus uh, the Board of Education there, and. Uh, Suddenly, black teachers went away. Most black students today would tell you uh, in an area like this that they may have never had a black teacher or only had one black teacher. Exactly. Uh, and all students have failed for that. And now, that's not me decrying integration. That's me decrying unequal, uh, unequitable immigration to allow us to be there but not give us a seat at the table of, of power, of leadership. When you, when you put women, when you put black folks, when you put gay folks, folks with uh, differing views and lenses of perspective, you get different innovative ideas and, and, and people excel. Mm -hmm. When you just put one group, when you just take a, 
you know, cisgender, the heterosexual, uh, white males, society benefits those heterosexual, cisgendered white males and other folks get left behind. Mm-hmm. And we have to make a concerted effort. And if, if, if it can't happen here in Bloomington, it can't happen anywhere. Uh, where we start including black leadership. We saw it uh, where, where Byron Turner, who was, you know, works with DCS, is eloquent and passionate, involved, and, and did the work, went out there and wasn't elected to, and I'll, I'll just be truthful, to a person that anyone in the community should have, uh, have been able to be. You know, if, if someone's pet poodle was on the ballot, they should have at least had a, a chance <laughs> against the candidate that he lost to. <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of folks would say, well, that's because people didn't pay attention to the school board. Um, okay. What we need to have happen is when black leaders step up and they go for something, that everyone in our community makes a concerted effort to make sure that those people excel, to have their name out, to be doing, whether it's a podcast like this or being in Bloom Magazine or being in the Herald Times, that you give them a platform, that you encourage them, that you make financial contributions, that if they need material help, if they need someone to be treasurer, that you have folks stand up and support them. And not just black people, uh, whether it be people who, who or any marginalized group, they hold a tremendous amount of value to our society because they've been forced to live in a different way. When you talk about black innovation, necessity was the mother of that innovation. You know, black folks had to come up with things to, because they were expected to do too much work for nothing sometimes. So they had to create something to help make that task possible. And black folks have built America. You could from Absolutely. from, from <laughs> the the South and the cotton field to to the White House itself. This country was built and made great on on the free label of, of black backs mm-hmm. and and with the skill of black hands. And if we're not honoring that, we've well, they, lost the only hope of greatness that America has. They created one of the first unions, the Pullmans, the trains, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which I happened to ride a lot when I was a, a little really? kid. Yes, we did. My parents, we didn't have a car. Well, we didn't want a car. We traveled by train. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of experience with the uh, the Pullman uh, men. The guy, it was all mm-hmm. men. That yeah. worked. And as a kid, I, yeah, it was, and, and that was like the second union. The first union, I think, was mine workers or something in the coal mines or something. Okay. I but, know the Pullman's union because I, I just know my I, But the Pullman's union history, might yeah. have been the first. Um, but they unionized, and they were very powerful, and they did an excellent job. And who knows that? I mean, we, well, we've made a tremendous error, and it's intentional, of course, and you know that, to not teach history, of black, real black history, and real Native American history. It should all be incorporated in the schools. Um, and, you know, if you have teachers that aren't capable of doing that, well, then bring in somebody that can. You know, I had a friend that, that said something to me about learning black history. She was a, a, a white peer uh, about my age. Well, black history is American history. It is. We leave it out. We leave that we section out. And, but even when we include it, we don't promote the black voices. So I, I was speaking about Harriet Tubman. To me, someone that I, everyone should know about from mm-hmm. black history. Yeah. And she didn't know who Harriet Tubman was. And I was aghast and said, how do you not know who Harriet Tubman was? Didn't you take black history in school? And she said, yes. She said, but, uh, you know. I'm from Southern Indiana, and in Black History, we learned about how Lincoln freed the slaves. Yeah. <laughs> and 
There was nothing to me and that that could, was a political <laughs> move anyway. People had <laughs> it was, but there was nothing more American to me than that statement uh, of in Black history. They learned about what the white man did for for the black folks. And and I think that, like you said, it's an intentional thing to disempower blacks, to disconnect us from our culture. We have a unity that has always frightened white America. Uh, We still see it when we talk about voting. You know, black folks, especially black women, vote as a block that uh, is is almost a whole. You know, it's nothing for us to have. 95 to 98% of black people vote together. Mm-hmm. And that's a power that, that folks anywhere else can't match. Which is why they're trying to disenfranchise so many people, because they, they, they know that. I, you know, I guess, I, I don't know why people, well, I am a clinical psychologist, so my background is psychiatry and stuff. And I, I know that why people don't want to give up power. But what they don't realize, you know, when, you, when you're a prison guard, you're in prison too. You get to leave at the end of the day, but all day long you're in prison. And if you oppress someone, you're oppressed too. You just don't realize it. But you have to keep justifying why you are, why you have what you have, why you are what you are, and why these people don't. And so you create all, create all these myths about a group of people. Absolutely. So from you know, one mental health profession to another one, we talk about the Stanford prison uh, experiment where we had folks who were, who were willing to do outrageous and, and devious things to other normal everyday people. And you're right, they, to, to do that, you have to dehumanize somebody uh, and, and devalue them. And there's a part of your humanity that is lost in that process. And... Where that's at in America is that we often just don't talk about race because white people feel guilty mm-hmm. uh, because they benefit and they know that, that uh, if they have generational wealth that it was built upon that and a lot of times they know that position in society status is often dependent upon that. Uh, so when black people talk to white people about race there's that, there's that dissonance that kicks in, that uncomfortability. Mm-hmm. And like I said, unless we intentionally confront that, that's going to persist for a very long time. I know. I agree. Well, I don't know. Let's see how long we've been talking here. Oh, an hour. It's been great. It's been great. I um, are you going to run for office? Can I ask you that openly? Are you going <laughs> to? Yes. The answer is yes. I I put the fillers out there with the folks that I felt like knew if if I was going to run, could I win? Is my thing. I don't want to be. Uh, I don't want to run to be a token. I don't want to to just run as the activist candidate that's not a sure. serious candidate. Sure. Uh, I think it's important that we have black candidates. So I think you, you I'm pretty definite that you'll see me launch an exploratory committee uh, within the next couple of weeks. <laughs> and I'm going to continue to build. And, and, and it's not about me. Just like Black Lives Matter isn't just about one member of the leadership. We have some tremendously powerful leaders that it would not be as effective without. We can talk about uh, one of our core council members, Jada B, is uh, is a phenomenal yes. force. Yes, she is. Uh, it, it's almost like being uh, locked in a room with a force of nature sometimes. I told her she should run for office too. <laughs> and, and I would love to see her run. Uh, <laughs> She's kind of Michelle Obama on it. She says she's not running. But we need those powerful people who are willing to, to, to have more allegiance to the truth and to service than they are to power and status. 
Exactly. I've known Jada for a long time. I, I've kind of watched her grow up in a way because mm -hmm. I met her when she was a student, and I've always thought she was a powerhouse, very talented, very smart. And I did say, you should run for office. She said, I'm not political. And I said, oh, yeah. right. <laughs> yes. And she'll still say that. Still, she'll still say that. But we've been probably one of the most political groups this year. And I think what we found was that there was a void that people were ready and willing for a group to step into. Mm -hmm. uh, for too long, like you said, some of these folks, for most of my lifetime, have been in these offices. Uh, some of them take it for granted. And it's time that you shake it up and make them aware that, hey, there's a job to be done. To talk about the Bearcat, I'm mortified that I could go to all those folks on city council and ask them what happened to this quarter of a million dollar purchase and then have to research the parliamentarian. Uh, Roland had to research for a week to even figure out what happened with the process of a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, there should be transparency. We all pay taxes and mm -hmm. in that some of that money. That fiduciary spent. responsibility is important. Uh, those dollars and those cents speak to the interest of our community and they also speak to our values. So if you're going to stand in a position where you're stewarding uh, those assets, you have to take it seriously. And I'm not saying that some of them don't take it seriously. I'm saying that none of them were taking it seriously enough. Well, what government I think forgets, even local government and certainly federal government, is that people's money Mm -hmm. And their vote counts. It's supposed to count. It's supposed to count in this American dream that we're supposed to have here. And if I, if I pay into, like there was a lot of effort, uh, like Joan Baez, I don't know if you know who Joan Baez is, a folk singer from, mm -hmm. she's my age. Um, she refused to pay a certain percentage of her taxes that was going to go to the military. Well, you know, then they just divide it up a different way. I mean, you really can't control it specifically like that, but we should have more input and say as to how it benefits our community and everybody in our community, not just a few. And everybody, you know, if somebody comes in, you have an idea and somebody comes in and they don't like that idea, well, it doesn't mean that your, your idea is horrible. It means maybe it needs to be finessed so that it works with everyone. Um, but I think, I think we'll probably end this interview right now because we've covered a, a lot of material. It's been wonderful talking to you and getting Thank to you. know you in person. I love sitting across from you and watching you as your passion. And um, anyway, uh, maybe we'll talk again. I absolutely hope so. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. Sure. And this is signing off from our outside view because we are outside looking in. <laughs> to another edition of our Outside View podcast. Um, today, I am excited to talk to somebody I haven't talked to for a while, even though I see him on Facebook all the time, Joshua Sutton, who was a, a co-anchor with me on Blooming Out years ago, and um, also his partner, Jeremy Nett, who I haven't actually met yet, but I guess I'll find out a lot about him today. So welcome to our Outside View, guys. Thank you. It's nice to hear from you again. Thank yeah, you it, it is nice to talk again. Um, how are you doing? I am doing well. Uh, it's been a few years, I think, since we've ever talked together in any format uh, like this. In fact, we talked about doing a podcast real fast and all the equipment we would need. And here we are on our on my phone, at least. So <laughs> I know. Isn't it amazing, the technology? Now, this system, when, when you um, get it to go through and actually make a call, it works. <laughs> it's so easy. It's, it's it amazing. Is. It's fascinating. Well, I mean, I'm doing well. I, uh, I think, uh, so let's see, last, 
last we talked, we were in Bloomington. And then, of course, since then, I lived in Indy. And then I've lived in uh, Columbus, Ohio for about three years. And recently, I just moved uh, to Atlanta to be here with my now fiance, Jeremy. So, Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank That's you. cool. That's really cool. I but you always you look so happy. And mm-hmm. given some of the things that we have gone through here in Bloomington and Josh went through when he was younger, um, I'm really happy to see him so happy. So <laughs> it is amazing what happens with time and uh to, to kind of reflect, especially today, on some of those things that uh we did experience. Cause you have known me when we when did we meet? We met I, would, I don't know when you first came to IU. So what were you like, a junior or a sophomore? Or? Well, let's say I went to Indiana State freshman year uh, in Terre Haute, and that was in the fall of 2006. So I think I joined IU in the fall of 2007, and then I would have met you, I think, in 2008, that winter when I took over uh, the out presidency. So yeah, that's a long time ago. It really is. It's like 11. <laughs> that's a whole decade. Wow. That really is. I can't believe it. <laughs> I, know. I know. Well, yeah, you were an amazing um, president of out. You were at president what, for three years. They kept reelecting you. Yes, it was three years. And it was really an honor to be president of that organization and try to keep it, uh, keep it going in those kind of final years that we had it so well you know I was talking to Michael Reese the other day uh we did a, a podcast too and you know he was a former co-anchor as well and um yeah. it, it's amazing how how um I don't know how time goes by and how things change and I was reflecting with him and now with you about that of all the the anchors and co-anchors of the show I'm the only one still in Bloomington <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else left. They were smarter than me. <laughs> I it's something I I I have I have uh, sung praises about you and Carol to uh, Jeremy because I I you know now we put it in perspective. Ten years is a long time, and uh, uh, I am a completely as I'm sure you are a different person than you know you are every ten years prior. But uh, it, it's it's crazy to think um, that you were so adamant about getting out of Bloomington. <laughs> I know. Well, <laughs> that it rubbed off on everybody else. <laughs> I think so. I really think so. I think it, it's Indiana more than just Bloomington because Bloomington, unfortunately, in some ways, it's an easy place to live. It makes it easy. You know, everyday daily life, just coming and going is very easy. But the politics yeah. here, of course, and the, and the, a lot of the attitudes are um, well, they're just depressing, really, <laughs> as you probably remember quite well. You know, and I we moved we moved from the country into Bloomington because country life. Well, we're in our seventies now, right. and we uh, just uh, it got to be a little too much. I mean, we have a half an acre here where we are now, and that's enough for the dog and and for a little bit of yard work and things like that. Um, it got to be too much, and besides, the temperament in the last few years, and of course, once. Number 45 was elected, um, that uh, it became scarier yes. out in the country. It really did. It, nobody menaced us. We had, we had fairly decent neighbors. At least we had a couple that were really nice. Um, but it just began to feel more and more uncomfortable. Well, you so know, we, <clears throat> sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say that here in Georgia, uh, leading up even to the election, when you leave the, the blue bubble of, the, of Atlanta on the blue red map, and and because I had a, a mountain place we would go to, and uh, you would see these signs like like billboards for uh, sporting goods companies with guns saying a revolution is coming, 
Yes. And, and, uh, and they, there was, it, was, it was a real primal uh, kind of threat in this country going on that I, I think people didn't realize and that obviously Trump tapped into it and it, it got him where he is and now he's using that strength and now they're very empowered. You know, it, it kind of, well, I grew up in, in large cities, metropolitan areas, New York City and Kansas City, and I lived in D.C. and I lived in Philadelphia. And when I came here, I didn't realize I moved out in the country because I wanted to have a little farm. I always wanted a mini farm. And what I realized is um, there were people out here that were still fighting the Civil War. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they were, they were armed. Well, they, they do. They have underground bunkers and everything because you never know when the government's going to come and get you. And right. <laughs> right. I, I thought this really exists. Well, it really exists. I just never was aware of it. And I think that's what we're seeing now is the emergence of all those people. They feel empowered. You're right. You're right. And, you know, Josh and I now live at, literally on the side of, of the battle for Atlanta. And when, when Sherman marched to the sea, he took off on the railroad tracks that are parallel to the street outside our house here. So uh, there, in, I'd, I'd had known about these kind of conflicts and I'd seen things, but uh it, it the, not to the degree uh, that I see here, the, and it, and you know the folks that don't live in the city they, they come into the city and there's, there's just a tension. Right, exactly. That, that's it's greater than ever, unfortunately. Well, I think I noticed on Facebook that you're originally from Pikeville, Kentucky. Is that right? <laughs> well, I yes, I spent um, my formative years there. I was born in Detroit and lived in the suburbs until I was eight, and then my parents were both from uh, Pikeville, the Pikeville area, and. Uh, moved us back there. So I, I spent um, my high school and college years there. I went to the University of Pikeville for undergrad and then uh, I studied psychology at Marshall in West Virginia and uh, practiced there for four years before moving to Atlanta in 2000. So you do know a lot about, you have a frame of reference for the South, kind of the Southern attitude. Oh yes. And then, uh, you know, I, just, I learned a lot from him. I'll bet. I'll bet you have. See, in West Virginia, it, you know, when I moved in 2000, it was right after or right around the election. And uh, that was, of course, um, Gore Bush. And so what came up then, we're, we're talking about West Virginia in particular, because West, West Virginia went for Jimmy Carter the second time, it went for Dukakis. I mean, it was a very, very blue state. And it flipped in 2000. And it was known that it was revealed then it's the most homogenous state, I mean, the most white, lofty mm -hmm. state. Uh, and I got that, but yet there, there were still problems. I remember, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was a psychologist in Southern West Virginia, one of the offices I worked out of, uh, I had to call Child Protective Services because a, a mother wanted me to fix her daughter because she wanted to go out with an African-American boy at their high school, like the one of two families at the high school. And, <laughs> and the girl tells me that, you know, yeah, my eyes black because my mama hit me because I wanted to date this gentleman. So, <clears throat> and then when, you know, I, I was a mandated deporter by state law not that I wouldn't have, have called authorities anyway, but you know, I had explained to someone you can't abuse your child uh, because she wants to, you know, she likes somebody you don't approve of. You know, you can, you can't hit her. Sure, uh, exactly. So, <clears throat> yeah, so <laughs> I wound up. Uh, Children are not property. No, and I wound up having to park my car away from the building when I went to that office again because there were threats against my life because because uh, I took that stance and and told the the child protective services so. So it was, and you know, the, the things they would call me when they would call, uh, I mean, they would literally say, I won't say the word, but they'd say, is that N-word lover there today? Yeah. Tell him we're looking yes. for Tell him we're looking for him. I'm like, oh, I'm just trying to help these people. <laughs> so. Well, you know, I came here, um, when, when I came here actually to live, I guess you could say, 
Um, I had my house was burned down by the Klan, and I found out that and oh, it's because it, I had a, a, a big house. I was renting a house, and I had a couple Jesus. friends of mine, and they were a black and white couple, mm -hmm. and uh, they rented upstairs from me. And the Klan didn't like that very much. Wow! They burned the house down. We all got out. We were all okay, Jesus partly because we were young and could really run, but. Um, it, it it made me wow. realize not this wasn't in Bloomington, um, but where was it made this? Me, huh? Where was that? Franklin, uh, where Franklin College is. That's how I ended oh. up in Indiana. Is I went to Franklin College after, and then I went to Kansas oh. University for graduate work. But um, they at Franklin, I found out that the police department, and the fire department, <laughs> all these were very clan connected, and it just wow. was terrifying to me, absolutely terrifying. And I realized, you know, then too that those kinds of people exist too. Um, but yeah. I don't, I don't know. Wow. I don't, that's why people say, you know, Bloomington is such a great, great place to live in Indiana because it's safer than that. Well, it is, but the outlying areas around here, just right outside the city are not very friendly. And well, in fact, even some of the people in the city, but, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I guess if you kind of turn a blind eye to all that, it's, it's kind of a comfortable place to live, but we are talking about moving again now. <laughs> right. It's an interesting uh, segue kind of into the, you know, I wouldn't say I'm like, I've traveled a ton, but coming, going to Bloomington and Indy and then I, you know, Columbus, Ohio. Exactly. A wonderful time, but they all share this common theme that we've been fighting and talking about all these years. It's the, the metro area and then the outliers. I got to know Columbus, Ohio pretty well through my line of work. Uh, I worked in a lot of the suburbs and neighborhoods. In fact, I knew more about the rural areas of Columbus than I did downtown. But it's like the further, we've talked about that bubble, the, you know, further north, south, east, or west I got from the city, the signs for 45 and his running mate got denser and more thick. And, you know, it just, but Columbus was so blue and it's like, it wasn't that far away from the city. And the same thing for you, you're not that far from Bloomington. So like that protection is very, small and these people are emboldened right now in the outside. exactly that's that's very true well an interesting thing about columbus is my grandfather was uh my dad and my grandfather were from the region area of northern indiana right around chicago and my grandfather was a uh, part of the underground railroad and he was very much he was a union organizer way back in the 20s and he moved to Columbus, Ohio from <clears throat> Indiana. He left Indiana because Columbus was a much safer, more comfortable place to be. So the whole time I knew him, he lived in Columbus. Um, so it's kind of interesting the way the, 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 the red and the blue states and the cities and the politics have changed over the years. Yes. Uh, but, but Columbus is a university city, too. So Absolutely. Well, Josh, what do you think about when you think back about your experiences without? How did that? I mean, you were... You oh, obviously, wow. <laughs> well, in terms of how it's made you look at the queer community now, mm -hmm. and the fact that I noticed you do, you're still doing, you have a flyer business now, you're doing uh, graphics and things like that, like you did somewhat when you were here. Yes. Uh, so I have to put time frames on things just to kind of put it into perspective. So I got to IU around 2000, so what did I say, the fall of 2000 and uh, seven or eight. Seven, 2007. I transferred from Indiana State, came to Iowa as a sophomore. So uh, I joined out at that call out meeting in the fall of 2007. And prior to that, uh, I had when living in Terre Haute, um, you know, about three years before that, being a junior in high school kind of put me in touch with 
uh, my peers and young queer community because we had that kind of an underage venue to go to and it's kind of where I got introduced to drag and um, it, it was all unscripted. So going into the out presidency, I kind of had uh, a touch of kind of the issues that faced my peers because myself, I was kind of having a, an easy time coming out as a gay man. So uh, the perception of what I dealt with and all the conversations we had, I think have only grown from what were once seeds of change into these bigger conversations. So I think that that time and out um, has prepared me today to understand the conversations that have matured that I feel like started when you and I were, were, were first starting to meet that kind of change in, in terms of the, just what you said, you addressed it as the queer community, how we address ourselves, gender identity issues, uh, switching the L and the G so that the L has prominence and, you know, all the flack I got for being a gay white man and, and being called unfair when that was furthest from the truth. So I, I feel like I started to experience the things that have finally broken the shadows and become mainstream issues because I was the president of an organization about 10 years ago when this stuff was starting to come out. Well, I guess, I mean, I'm sure you remember that, that out no longer exists. Yes. And I think out was a really, really significant and important organization for, for queer youth, whatever. And um, I, I do think it's missed on campus. I mean, students that I've, I've talked to don't even know it ever existed. And um, everything goes through the, which is now called the LGBTQ plus culture center. Okay. Uh, everything goes through that now. Well, at least they changed the name. Yeah. More, more, you know, comprehensive and more inclusive. But um, that's great. I, I don't really notice. I mean, I'm on their mailing list. I, on mailing list for several organizations still at, at IU, and I, I don't see a lot going on. I do know that Bloomington Pride has grown. Well, that was kind of the issue we had when Out was in its final chapters, um, was the issue of student power versus administrative power, and yeah. that uh, the LGBTQ uh, plus house now, as it's called, um, is was you know born as i'm you talked about born out of the out organization out of a student need and it was actually you know revolutionary at the time because it was a recognition from a college administration that yes lgbt individuals and that's great so we've got that recognition that mainstream uh light now in the professional and the college sense but but what it's done is that power has been taken away from the student body, I think. And we were the start, we're seeing the start of that um, in a sense that it's not needed anymore. And maybe for a few years there wasn't with, again, the acceptance and mainstream of LGBT issues and being more forefront in conversations. But now that we're there, it's almost like the adults are playing and the kids aren't getting a chance to you know have their own voice again which is almost a backward step I would agree with you I, I know that there were certain people like the, the vice chancellor and uh, when her, certainly when Herman Wells died um, there were there were some big changes in the administration at the university and I, I thought some of it you know when people say well when you get old you can't always live in the past well some things in the past were a good thing and they contributed to the present and the future. 
Right. And I think out existed for like from the seventies to the, when was that like 2000 or something? Well, um, and that's, that's the great point because it was born out of the need as the game was being switched forward. If you recall. Exactly. Uh, yes. Yeah, I still right. have all that documentation actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's fantastic. I actually came across some old documents uh, in my recent move. I'll have to share with you, but uh yeah, you know, it's everything that was born and created out of a need. And sometimes they get washed up in all the change and it completely eliminated. But I still feel there's a need there. Uh, oh, I do, too. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I know um, our, our granddaughter and her friends, um, there's a need. There's a need in Bloomington for community mm -hmm. members as well. I mean, the Pride organization, they have the Pride Film Festival and then they have a Pride event in fall so it can include the students um yeah and actually that's grown they've done actually they've done a pretty good job with that um it's it's grown and it's pretty you know it's pretty well accepted in the town in the city town of bloomington whatever <laughs> and um but i still think there's a need for that one-on-one -on -one, um advisory uh mentorship kind of leadership yes and yes. coming from the students themselves, because obviously, as you know, you were a leader and mm -hmm. the, 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 the students that led out were leaders. They came there with that kind of personality and they helped so many other students. That, yeah, that was a beautiful thing. We had great leadership and we didn't always agree, but that was that was the good part about it because we grew from it and it brought issues to my attention. I was blind to and vice versa. Um. If I could jump in, you, you, sure. you brought up uh, pride movements in, in more rural communities. And uh, in 1997, I was one of six people who uh, founded the Pride West Virginia Committee. And we had the first pride parade in West Virginia that year and then wow. expanded considerably over the years. And they, they continue with um, events uh, even this past year. So it's going on for 20 plus years now. Um, and I think about the need for pride in, in rural communities, particularly, and uh, I also my my hometown, as I call it, of Pikeville, Kentucky, recently this past year had their first gay pride event in the the park where they celebrate Hibbley Days every April, which is a big bluegrass. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> um, times are changing. Um, and it, well, they well, you <clears throat> probably Josh probably told you about Spencer Pride too. I mean, Carol and I helped found Spencer Pride, which Spencer is a town of about twenty five hundred people. Oh wow, that's awesome. And it's, yeah, it's it's uh, thirty. It's about uh, oh, it takes about twenty minutes to get there from Bloomington. It's not very far, and um, it's it has grown, grown exponentially. It's amazing um, the job that they've done. They're going to have a conference there. They actually, well, the two guys that run it now are are young. They have lots of energy, and mm -hmm. um, they bought a building in Spencer, and they have a community center now. Oh wow! They have events there, and they're going to have a conference there. So I have to give them a lot of credit and recognition for what they've done because Owen County, which is the where Spencer is, and Spencer's the county seat, um, people need that. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, they need it in the rural communities and the small towns. Yes, and I remember, uh, you know, six people put on an event that, you know, 600 people came to the first time. We were delighted to have 600 people come out in daylight and march down to, to the state capitol uh, on a Sunday afternoon in June in 1997 so um i remember being sheerly exhausted like i discovered a new dimension of exhaustion i didn't know was possible really uh 
at the end of it and just really thinking, was this, you know, what was all this for? And and getting this this call from him, you know, somebody I didn't know that had found my name in some of the literature. He just wanted to thank me and said that that it had, you know, he was uh, unsure of his gender, and but he went by you know male pronouns. But he said, I'm not sure that I'm going to wind up being a boy. But I saw uh, things on TV and it just uh, what you all were doing in Charleston and it made me realize I'm not alone. And for every person that finds you and makes that phone call or even online now makes sends an email, there, there are others, of course. And so, but if, even if it's just that one, I, I was like, that is why I did this. And I, and I, and I maintain that, you know, people who are, um, I'll use the word privileged to live in, in larger metropolitan areas where pride has become more of a party. It's criticized as well as this really what we need now that with marriage equality and, and, you know, it's become just a big celebration. And do you just, do you need a party just for being the LBT? Well, it's not just a party. It's obviously a, a, the fact that we exist is, is a political statement in terms of having pride events, but also there are those that, that attend that are inspired and there are those that cannot attend. They're inspired by, from a distance. And, and, you know, I think that saves lives. It does. It absolutely does save lives. Um, I know when Carol was, uh, you know, assistant administrator at the at the office on campus here, and I, I mean the incidences. She was always very very good at keeping confidentiality. But some of the the cases and the situations and the students who, you know, whose parents disowned them and things like that. I mean, we need these organizations and we need people out front. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm so happy. I mean, I mean I dealt with my own prejudice uh, prejudices uh, toward me once I accepted a position of advisor to out on campus and then when i became uh you know co-anchor of blooming out and my pictures in the paper for the the first clear radio station in bloomington or or indiana whatever um a lot of people turned their backs all of a sudden no you do find out who your friends are don't you oh absolutely you do absolutely well josh i wanted to talk to you just a little bit about what you're doing now um yeah it looks it looks like you're doing promotional work still and yeah, uh, so I, you know, I attended IU for interior design, and I completely morphed into some type of graphic promotional design uh, technique, as I call it, that I learned. So um, I spent more time on my presentation boards for a floor plan in a in a design studio than I did in terms of thought process of the design itself. So you know, everything was always pretty, just maybe didn't make sense. So <laughs> you know. Uh, it always looked good to me. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, so that it all is relative uh, out and then Miss Gayu. Uh, really what sparked what I'm doing today is kind of a freelance graphic design slash branding service to uh, specifically the drag queen industry. And when I say drag queen, generally drag queens, but it's not limited to just female impersonators, you know, any type of uh, male or gender bending personator might seek help from me in terms of uh, establishing a visual identity or designing promotional work for a special events because social media is uh, big now. And uh, while a lot of these things don't go to print, um, they need things for Instagram and Facebook. And uh, it's become a, a business without any brick and mortar foundation. And it's wonderful. <laughs> Well, I think I've always thought you were incredibly talented at design. I always have. And you, but you always had a vision, too. I mean, you really grew Miss KIU. 
you know. It was such a success that I think that's one of the things that, you know, really doomed it as far as the university is concerned. Well, I appreciate that. And that's, that's, that's uh, the pageantry and the drag industry itself, as you know, was an integral part, um, especially like Vicki St. James and... Yeah, she's uh, wonderful. All those people. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of a connection coming into that, again, with my own personal background. But... Uh, the very first thing that really sparked this design direction I've taken was uh, the IU bus system offered us an advertising spot in the bus and uh, somebody had to design an ad. So I sat down and I figured out how to design an ad to fit this bus, whatever, with a little bit of knowledge that I had just acquired through my studies. And I managed to put a drag queen in the IU bus system like full and center for everybody to see. And I remember seeing that thinking, wow, I can do something with this one day. Um, hundreds of people get on this bus every day and see this event. And this, it was amazing. This it really was event. amazing. It was, it was so cool. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Miss Gay, you really grew because of a vision and, and a want to do it. And the pageantry of hosting uh, an event just gave everybody that creative outlet beyond, you know, what I was able to do with it. <laughs> Well, I also really firmly believe it, it served an educational purpose, too. It, it, can I jump in? I'm sorry. Yeah. I know you're talking, but I, I also remember female impersonation, and that's, that's uh, events and pageants, and that's how Josh and I actually met. But uh, I think everywhere that there's an event, uh, I agree there's an educational uh, side of it, because uh, people, when they enjoy themselves, they let their guard down, and they, they become, they open their minds, and then they walk away uh, feeling more open to what they, to the people that they've seen and, and what they represent in their mind. Uh, there's a, you know, a lot of the, as Josh does now, a lot of, of venues are uh, served as the straight community primarily in like restaurant settings with drag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that's really, I think, done a lot to open people's minds and hearts as well. Yeah. I've always thought drag queens were incredibly, incredibly brave, strong people. I know they suffer with their own self doubts and their own self images and everything, but, I mean, we wouldn't even have had the original gay movement if it hadn't been for drag queens. Right. And a lot of people aren't even aware of that. I used to try to do that on history on, on Blooming Out. Oh, uh, my goodness. And I think they're, they're absolutely amazing people. And I, the things that they're so brave and they're also focused on education. I know here in um, Evansville, the, the queer group that's down there that Wally Painter's been organizing for years and it does an amazing job the drag queens are going to the library and reading to children going into the schools mm -hmm. and reading books yeah, and that's, it's like yeah. read read with a drag queen or something like that i don't know and now they're getting they are getting opposition though the library people have attacked the library and the library board and all this yeah. um so i don't know how that's going to play out but i think that's an important thing to bring children i mean if children go into theater uh, you know, like somebody puts their child in dance or right. dance class or something. I mean, they're going to be exposed to all kinds of people. I think everybody should be. And then uh, there wouldn't be all these bigotries. Well, you know, there are, there's an organization here in, in the Atlanta area that one of the, the services they provide is, is housing for runaway LGBT youth. And they are, are finding um, basically abandoned transgender youth as young as, as 11 years old now. That's awful, isn't it? It's it terrible. is. But I also think, you know, if there's a kid in the story time who thinks, well, I might not be the gender I think I am, or I might, you know, it, not everybody has to always adhere to, to what a society expects. If I feel different, it's okay to be different, that sort of message. 
I mean, there's yeah, lots absolutely. to learn there. A lot. That along with the message that, well, these people, um, they're, they're not any different than I am. They're nice mm -hmm. people. Yeah. And they came and read books to us. You know, it, 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 it uh, eliminates that fear or that dread or that looking at somebody as being really odd or strange. It's, um, and of course, that's the opposite of what some people want to have happen. I realize that. <laughs> right. That's, that's a lot of the opposition. It's even unconscious, I think, of the folks. Some folks are very resentful towards the gay community, even within the, the LGB community. Oh, their yes. Own insecurities. <laughs> uh, yes. But so much so that when I, we had that first Pride Parade, um, there was a gay article in, in the, the liberal press in West Virginia that criticized us for not including drag queens. There were drag queens in the parade, but they, they weren't prominently featured enough, I suppose. And so that was the opposite of what we were trying to do. We weren't trying to exclude anybody. So in, to uh, counterbalance that impression that we had included folks, I started with, with uh, three other people, uh, a pageant, Miss Pride of West Virginia pageant, and that has continued through the years. And that has, <clears throat> excuse me, gave us an opportunity to go to every city that could host a prelim, basically every place that had a, a, a gay bar, a GLBT bar, and that wound up being like 11 different bars in, in the small state of West Virginia. Uh, but we would go to Bluefield and Beckley and Wheeling and Morgantown and Charleston Huntington, of course, Parkersburg. Uh, I'm leaving somebody out. Anyway, well, folks... Nessie, I've never even I've never even heard of any of that. It's amazing because oh, yeah. West. I mean, I've been through Wheeling, West Virginia, hundreds of times, driving back and forth to Pennsylvania and to New York, and and I love actually I love the scenery. It's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It is. But it always kind of seemed like a foreign place to me. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it, the bar that was there was like you, the first bar I went to in, in the early 90s, it, there was a, a, a light bulb that was turned on if it was open and you knew where the door was to knock. If you didn't, you had no business being there. <laughs> so, and it, it was, uh, we saw lots of, you know, that time in, in that state's history, at least there were lots of bars that used to be old homes that were turned into to big, you know, bars, but also there's some pretty nice clubs. But at any rate, we had a, at the, festival then right for the parade we had a pageant and then all the different cities came together to support their girl and and it, and it had a pride presentation category so it really forced people to really think about what pride meant to them and express it to the audience and it was just a really great thing and that continues today as well but that got me into pageantry and, and as a producer promoter and learning about transgender folks for the first time really uh face to face and um and it has enriched my life it's something i continue today josh and i do now together with uh, the U.S. of A. at large system, and uh, and we met actually at a pageant in Tampa, Florida, in 2011, the first time. So it's it just enriched my life. It's the most colorful, wonderful people, and and people just don't know what they're missing. It's it's just uh, an extraordinary, extraordinarily vibrant part of our culture that that just gives me a lot of uh, of color to my life for sure. Well, it's absolutely nothing new either. I mean, right. it's, it's been going on for for centuries uh, mm -hmm. in, in um, all different countries. It's nothing new. Um, it's just that people seem to be so shocked by uh, anyone that dares to step out of that gender binary image or whatever, and then costuming. And of course, I grew up kind of being in theater, so that, mm. that wasn't a shock to me. But um, right. <laughs> it, it really wasn't. I, as a, you know, as a kid, it was just kind of normal. I had drag queen friends when I was a kid, and so. Um, I wish everybody could have that experience, but are you, am I correct in thinking that you're an attorney, Jeremy? I am. You are. And what, what is your, your legal specialty? I uh, work in the uh, area of healthcare law, but I don't do medical malpractice. I, I do litigation, anything dispute oriented, but that can be 
uh, physician practices when they break up, oftentimes that's not as smooth as, as they might like, but also those are kind of small cases compared to uh, very large cases brought by whistleblowers claiming Medicaid fraud or Medicare fraud against a, a large hospital organization, for example, that it may just be a billing mistake or there may be something there, we investigate and, and determine that. And if you know it's defensible, we defend it and, and go to litigation and and appeals and all those things. <laughs> so uh, I, I am a litigator, but I would also do about a third of my work is what we call compliance work. I work with uh, large physician groups, helping them to um, make decisions so they, they don't get in trouble with, uh, with the regs because really there's no industry in the world more heavily regulated than healthcare in the United States. And folks, oh, I know. <laughs> folks can make yeah. a mistake and they think they're doing it right and then they're not. And it, and it really is just our bad. We did that wrong. <laughs> There's no malintent. And, it, and it's my job to make that clear when that's the case. And when it's, well, and if it's not the case, then we usually refer to somebody else. <laughs> well, I come from kind of a, a medical family. A lot of my family are doctors and nurses. Oh, okay. And not me. I went into psychology, but... Um, I I, uh, I wonder if you see changes since uh, we've had this new administration in the last couple of years as compared to when Obama was president. I mean, healthcare to me is just, I think it's become a nightmare. Well, um, you, you know, what's happened is, of course, the, that the marketplace has fewer um, payers in it now for, the, for Obamacare. So uh, even though people may have coverage, it's, it's harder for them to actually use it. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm in a state where Medicaid has not been expanded. So, that, And we have hospitals here that continue to close in rural areas. Uh, at least a third of Georgia, and I'm probably saying the number wrong, it's probably more. Uh, people live more than 100 miles from an emergency room. So if they're having a terrible accident, they're, they're really in bad, in bad shape. Or yes. if they need emergency medical care. And that is because these hospitals could not afford to stay open because uh, they're giving away too much free care. And that was the, the point of the Affordable Care Act was to, to fill in all those gaps. So if Medicaid had been expanded to capture those folks that were getting free care because they can't afford care, but they, they didn't qualify for Medicaid, we were supposed to get that, you know, that gap was the Medicaid expansion. So we didn't get that here. So that has uh, really sent a lot of hospitals out of business. So I, in the healthcare industry, I can't say that things are any better. No, I, I do see uh, an increased trend that continues of folks wanting to uh, merge and, and combine into larger systems, larger and larger systems so they can compete with one another and also for payment purposes. So. I think one of the things that's discouraged me about all of this is that the insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies actually kind of telling doctors what they can do, how they can treat their patients. Mm -hmm. um, that I find that very distressing. Um, I mean, doctors are the, the, the experts. They should know. And, and, and then they can't do this or that because of some regulation or because it's not covered by somebody's insurance policy or whatever. Um, oh, yeah. I've always, I've always been for universal healthcare. Now how that actually is implemented. I realize there's a lot of steps to that. Yeah, um, that, that is, uh, is something that's getting more attention now than ever. I, I think that, that there's a lot of confidence on the, the side of the Democrats and, and they're willing to put forth bolder and bolder ideas like Medicare for all that, uh, you know, President Obama didn't even try really because um, there was just no appetite for something that globally changing. But, I, you know, who knows what could happen? I think that that is probably, you know, even though government doesn't run everything perfectly, the insurance companies follow Medicare, Medicaid regulations anyway, and what they pay, what they don't most of the time. I mean, at least as a guideline. So uh, it, it would probably make more sense. It would put, you know, a lot of people uh, in the insurance industry would be very upset because I'm not sure they'd have a role anymore. 
or somebody has, it, it's it's just you know, there's going to be a lot of resistance to that. Well, obviously, so I think so. Well, I think some of the resistance is people just don't understand um, how all of it works now, and then what it would take to change it, and the implications of they always are afraid. So many people are afraid they're going to have to pay for somebody else. Well, they don't realize they're paying for somebody else anyway. All the people that go to the emergency room and don't have coverage. That's, I mean, the rest of us pay for that. Well, and we pay for somebody else when we're healthy and don't use our insurance for the year that somebody else does. And we pay premiums mm-hmm. that are invested that are those, and those premium investment proceeds we use to pay for somebody else's care. We are always paying for somebody else's care. And then when we're sick, we want somebody else to pay for our care. That's how the system works. I know. <laughs> That's how insurance exactly. works, Paul Ryan. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure he's going to listen to you. He stepped down. That's how. Yeah, but, but he's, Lisa famously was like, "Well, you can't make healthy people pay for unhealthy people's care." Well, that's the only way insurance works. You have to spread the risk. That's right, exactly. I want to ask you a question, just just because you are a lawyer, and I know this may not be your area of expertise, but you know, um, the uh, the courts ruled uh, about that case. One of the many cases about that baker who wouldn't bake a cake for uh-huh. a gay couple, uh-huh. and they ruled in his favor. And I wonder the implications of that. I realize that was just one narrow case, but the implications of that on down the line of businesses having the right to deny services based on their religious beliefs. Well, you know, it, it is, a, you know, the court was very clear that it was narrow holding and it's not very useful in terms of precedential value, right? In terms of applying it elsewhere. But at the same time, it, it's not like we can ignore it either. And I think it does send a message that and we're going to have more of those cases they're already working their way through right um you know it's the ongoing tension we have between religion and and um and equality uh religion has been pitted against equality for for a very long time superficially so really i don't i don't i never thought that you know glbt people couldn't be religious and religious people couldn't like lgbt for it but they're they've been pitted against each other uh it's yeah. just used politically. Yeah, politically, for sure. And it really got, if you, if you pay attention to the history, it got much worse when, when Reagan empowered the uh, moral majority, as they called it, and the evangelicals, and, and the ones that yes. organized as a force. And when communism fell, this is my, I'm not alone on this theory, but nobody really believes me. But if you pay attention, when the, <laughs> when the Berlin Wall fell, it got much worse. The scrutiny against the LBT people in this country got much worse because the religious folks and even the 700 Club and all those folks turned away from the evil empire of Russia. And Soviet Union and much more on to what was going on in their own, our own countries are blaming us for natural disasters and all that baloney. It seems like those kind of people have to always blame somebody. It's got to be a scapegoat. For, for but, natural phenomena, even. I mean, yeah. you know, and I think the more, well, I think some of them actually go step over the edge. They just go insane if you look at some of them after they get older. They do. Um, <laughs> and then, and you know, even though 45 picked uh, the, the battle with transgender folks in the in the military, Judge he needed a scapegoat, frankly, because he, you know, was having another bad day, uh, and with no data, no reason, and, and no support, and, and fr- frankly, at the time, a lie about any study being conducted at the time. Uh, and that's another thing that's going to, it's, that we're struggling with in, in the legal system. I teach a course at Georgia State University, College of Law, on sexual identity and the law, and I used to, you know, we used to talk about military service that week was, uh, talking about a history of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but now it's, it's the history of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the transgender legal fights. Some of the, so the old fights are new again. Well, yeah, they've started a fight in the military. Actually, 
doesn't even want to participate. I mean, no. they, they don't want to release the transgender soldiers and people that are serving. That's they, the disruption. Uh, they're talking about unit cohesion, which is a made up term and about, you know, disruption of service. This this thing they're doing is the disruption. <laughs> yes. It, well, it's a distraction, right? Yeah. Because yeah. actually nothing positive is being accomplished in this country right now at all. No. Nothing. <laughs> no. Nothing. <laughs> They're trying to turn us back into the 1950s. And believe me, I grew up in the 40s and 50s. And I remember what it was like in some respect. I was a kid, yes. Mm -hmm. But I remember um, the position of women. Um, uh -huh. I remember how people were treated, people of color. Uh -huh. um, I, I remember all that. And, and I don't want to go backward. And I don't, there's a whole lot of us that don't. I think it's absolutely insane to think that we should. And to turn back progress is just... I don't know. It kind of just, <laughs> I, sometimes I'm just in awe of what people say, the things that they say and the rationalizations they come out with for discrimination. Well, you know, it, it's not even turning back progress. It's, it's, it's demonizing and attacking progress as, 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 you know, false science or, or, you know, against the American way or, um, you know, it's a kind of a process of de-educating people, <laughs> yeah. if that's such a word. That makes uh, sense, though. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I think you can de-educate somebody by educating them, for sure. Like, you you know, do you remember, there was a group we once talked to, and I don't remember, uh, I don't remember their name, but we were there with their inception, and they wanted to use Living Out as a way to get into outreach, and it was that group that their purpose wasn't to talk wasn't to uh, sway or debate about political topics, but how to talk about them. Do you remember that yes. group? Vaguely. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, either way, I, I'm not sure their success now, but I, oh, I, had, I had always thought the concept was uh, fascinating because uh, some of the issues at hand are so, so simple, but the media and the, the, the propaganda has made it so complex that um, people my age and younger don't even know how to, to start talking about some of the things because you, you can't even make sense of it to even debate it in the first place. It's just word vomit every day. You mean, you mean like trying to decipher one of our, our president's speeches? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Every tweet, every speech, every, uh, every aspect of daily, daily operation that comes out of, uh, out of the uh, White House. And it was interesting that um, uh, I was in DC uh, with Jeremy a few uh, weeks ago and uh, I had got to see the White House for the first time and I was there with a now local friend and he was just talking about how um, everything is just pretty much thinned out and the interest has died down even around the Capitol, which means people just don't know how to talk about it and don't want to anymore and it's terrible. <laughs> Well, and that I find that kind of alarming. Absolutely. I, I, I really do, because well, I think people feel like government is so, you know, in control and, and, and out of reach that they can't do anything about it. And I don't think that's true. I think this recent election does show that, you know, the, the populace as a whole can make changes. Yes. And uh, we have to keep pushing our message forward. We have to keep educating children. I mean, I've been appalled at the support for these uh, charter schools, which are all just a guise for uh, evangelical religion. Almost all of them are. Um, and pushing this narrow-minded, negative, ignorant philosophy. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm kind of appalled at it. And I'm very appalled that we, we are taking money from public schools 
And I, I'm, I'm opposed to private schools anyway. I, I always have been um, because I think you need to be socialized in the whole construct of your society. And how can you make decisions if you've never been presented with any choices? Um, yeah, it's a very fair point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, th I think children being brought up with just one kind of straight line answer for everything. You know, I remember asking a little child once, um, and, and it kind of struck me as, as odd at the time. And now when I reflect upon it, it's not uncommon at all. But I asked her where she got her big blue eyes. And she said, God gave them to me. And she was only like three. <clears throat> and I was thinking that's kind of where the brainwashing begins is no, I was used to children who might say, well, my mom and dad, my mom has blue eyes and, you know, something a little more scientific. Even for a three um, but oh then that's, the, that's the science in me anyway. <laughs> yeah. That, that's um, crazy. That's such a valid point and a view that I've, I've never even taken a time to think about it's it's be it's at such a young age and it's almost that god-fearing aspect too if you don't accept uh -huh. this then you're damned any other way right exactly well what do you, okay so you two are engaged now yes and i suppose there's a wedding planned at some point yeah uh there will be probably yes <laughs> there is, there is. Uh, it, it will probably be in 2020 uh just because of um you know, those things take time and and where josh moved here in july and so uh we're um loving uh still you know nesting and oh sure uh, i think you know. this would be a good point to kind of recap everything together from 10 years to now is that uh <laughs> you know you never when i met you uh you were the advisor, were you an advisor for, I know you were advisor to Al, but what was your administrative role at the university? Um, well, I think, oh, I think I was an administrator, I was a program administrator and advisor in one of the communication programs at the time, I think. Was it, um, weren't you in African studies when we were? Uh, after, yeah, I went to African studies after I left the other, other okay. job and I was, uh, administrative assistant to the director there, program administrator. That's right. So, and you, I did do some advising and I worked with outreach and things like that. Which was wonderful because you had, you know, we, we can, I couldn't have had a better person to work with because you were open-minded and, you know, you had a very strong cultural approach and, uh, you know, I always admired uh, all your advice and everything we went through because we went through a lot of, uh, a lot of, I don't know what the right word is, but red tape uh, as far as trying to be a student organization with uh, academic uh, support, you know, you took a lot of flack. And so I always, I've, I've never had a chance to say thank you. Thank you for all the support and advice <laughs> you gave. Uh, but you're welcome. <laughs> you know, we, uh, but it all led to, you know, the point that we're at today. You wanted to always have your own podcast. And so I'm so excited that you're doing that for yourself and uncensored. You don't, we don't have to worry about somebody dropping the F-bomb. That's an, right. On regulated FCC channels. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you were there kind of from my beginning of the drag industry and uh, which has led me to meeting this man that you can't see, but sitting in front of me. So it's a beautiful uh, thing how it all works out. And uh, I'm glad to see that you guys are doing so well. Well, thank you. We are enjoying retirement. I have to 
I have to say, I mean, she, I think Carol worked from the time she was 14 or something. And um, I worked off and on at different things. That <laughs> too. Years, but I was at IU for 33, 34 years. I, and, um, I, so I enjoy, I enjoy retirement. I enjoy getting up one day and saying, I don't want to do anything today and I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice. Um, <clears throat> but I also miss the students a lot. Yes. <clears throat> I miss the students and I miss um, interacting. I do miss doing the radio show. We did that radio show for 11 years. You, and, um, you know, and that's that's one of those things. You started it, it's grown into something else, and it's. But you you will never, nobody will ever be able to take that away from you. Even though, even even in the time that you've invested, you know, it's all archived, and that's you know, truly I don't beautiful. Know, I don't know if it's all archived or not. I I don't know if it's anywhere. Um, it's all. I think mostly it's guys running it now, and guys running the station, and guys running the show, and oh, everything. <laughs> And that's not, that's just not, not right because you need to hear from all sorts of people. Yes. Oh, and that was your mission. And I think we did a, bit, a pretty good job at, at doing that when, when we were there and, you know, and while you and Carol were there and you guys gave so many uh, students an opportunity too to, uh, you know, get that technical aspect of running a show too. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sad sometimes to see how, you know, this talk of change and how great things have become. Sometimes there are sacrifices and unfortunately people don't carry on the uh, initial vision and, you know, how, what do you do, you know? Well, I have to say one thing about you as a leader is you were so all inclusive and you really did, you really did want to get the, the women students involved. And oh my gosh, did I not? <laughs> I know you really, I know you did. And it was, it, it was always kind of an, a, a, an effort for some reason to get um, uh, lesbians or straight women involved with things. Um, I, and I, I never could quite figure out why, but it's kind of the, the, the atmosphere I think on that particular campus is it's very, still very much a patriarchy. Yes. Yes. And, and kind of Bloomington is too. I think that's one of the things that we have to resist all the time. And, you know, when you spend your time resisting, mm. it takes energy away from accomplishment. Absolutely. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> but, but we managed, we did manage, I think, to accomplish some things. And, and from a historical perspective, I, I think we, you know, we, a lot of us led the way in, in making things happen. Um, I see results uh, somewhat, and it's not all as, as comprehensive as I'd like to see it, but it is. But uh, so what do you two have in your future? You're, it seems like you're busy. I notice on Facebook, you're always traveling somewhere. <laughs> well, blessed as it is. Uh, Jeremy, in all this talk, uh, has been the national promoter of Miss Gay Yusuve at large. Uh, which is quick drag knowledge, um, a national drag pageant, one of many platforms out there, uh, similar to the real uh, pageant industry, uh, America, USA, all that stuff. It's just the counterparts for female impersonators, and then the at-large portion means girls of plus size. So um, uh -huh. we've got uh, the US of A system was started in the... Uh, 35 years ago. 35 years ago, it was Miss Gay USA, and then it advanced to Miss Gay US of A due to some legal reasons. And then um, there was a need for uh, plus size uh, uh, 
division because you know as you have in any industry whether it's drag queens or uh racing there's always somebody that says there needs to be another category so uh, in 1989, Miss Gay Yusuf at large was born, and that was for the female impersonators, again, of the plus size size, and they got to compete at a national contest, and if they win, they get to travel the country and tour for a year and uh, go and watch other hopeful queens get crowned to do it all again and go to another national contest. So uh, Jeremy was able to take that over in 2011, and we are approaching 30 years of the pageant as a whole. Um, so we're really celebrating that and in this day and age of drag being uh, mainstream and uh, accepted, we're trying to keep pageantry, you know, which really brought competitive drag uh, to the clubs and the underground scene very much alive. So that's where the traveling comes in. It's always about drag usually. <laughs> that, that sounds exciting. I really miss the drag shows. Um, I don't I mean there's still a Miss Gay IU here, but it's it's very downsized and mm -hmm. I think they hold it in the dorm and I don't know. I, I haven't gone <laughs> gone to it at all. And the drag at well, we don't we don't go out to bars much anymore. I mean we just right. we're kind of past that. You reach a certain point. I yes. mean you guys are a long way away from that, but um You're not out there doing the line dance anymore on Friday night. Oh, are they? <laughs> no. <Not> okay. <laughs> That, that but, is, but you put I your do, dance I in really way. Miss, I miss the pageantry and yes. uh, the the comedy part of it. I oh, miss yeah. the sense of humor. Um, I really do miss it. But, you know, one of these days we may just come to Atlanta and visit you all. Absolutely. Please You're do. Always welcome. We've got a lovely spare room and uh, it's a fabulous city. There's so much. I, I'm so thankful to, to be here and uh, you know, you're talking about uh, places to explore and it's it's one of those places where it's got a lot of those same uh, struggles that we've experienced in our own and other communities, but it's also got for everything bad, there's a lot of good here and um, it's, it's, and the weather's nice. I know how you hate the cold weather. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm looking at, I'm looking at snow right now and I have a feeling you're not. No, uh. <laughs> it is, uh, it, it was a little brisk this morning at 38, but I will take that over whatever you have. <laughs> yeah, I think it was 22 this morning. <laughs> yeah, we ran. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah we yes, ran. yes, you do. What do you um, uh, have planned? Well, I do, um, I do like Atlanta. I've been to Atlanta uh, several times and I think it's a great city. And we, we are considering uh, in a year or so we may move again uh, and finally move away from here. And, and we've been thinking about the Southwest, which I really love. Mm. And then we've also been thinking about Atlanta. Yes. So, um, but I'm sure we'll be in touch. Yes. And I want you to know it's been great talking with you guys. It's been great you know, reconnecting with you, Josh, and then meeting you, Jeremy. And thank you. It sounds like you guys have a really great life and great plans. And, and that's wonderful. We're very happy. Thank you so much. So and, good talking to you. <laughs> and yeah, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Yes, absolutely. Please. Anytime. Okay. You guys take care. You, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.